Escaped Sapiens. Disgust is a pretty versatile emotion. We get disgusted by bugs, grubs, certain types of food, political opinions, and moral taboos. There's sexual disgust, cultural disgust, smells, and sounds. How do all of these relate to each other? And why do we crunch up our noses when we feel disgusted? In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dan Fessler, who is a biological anthropologist at UCLA, who specializes in disgust. We talk about the role that disgust plays in shaping our communal, social, sexual, moral, and political behavior, as well as the way that disgust sensitivity varies across genders, species, political orientations, and cultural lines. This is a good one. Hope you enjoy. Well, then, uh, if you're happy and relaxed, uh, Dan Fessler, welcome on the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Before starting proper, I, I really have to ask one question in particular, which is, as someone who researches disgust, the, the coronavirus pandemic, as horrible as it's been for many people, for you, has it been in some sense a really fascinating laboratory in which to see some of your theories of disgust sort of in action in, in a real life scenario? So uh, during the pandemic, um, we have been attempting to investigate a number of questions um, uh, related to behavior during the pandemic and people's perspectives on the pandemic. Um, in my lab, we haven't pursued questions of disgust so far relative to the pandemic, but um, we are setting up a collaboration with Josh Ackerman at the University of Michigan, um, looking at uh, disgust reactions that may be relevant to um, aspects of the, the, the pandemic. And, and in particular, um, one possibility that I have uh, speculated on previously is that um, our evolved disease avoidance psychology and the corresponding behaviors is actually poorly suited to a disease like COVID-19 um, because uh, viruses like SARS-CoV-2 um, that is highly transmissible respiratory viruses um, uh, with some measure of lethality may be evolutionarily novel in the history of human beings because in order to uh, persist in populations, they require fairly high population density. Mm -hmm. um, if you have more isolated, small populations, um, they may move through a population fairly quickly and then die out. And, and the greater the lethality, obviously, the more rapid that process occurs. Uh, and um, so humans are about, our species is about 300,000 years old, approximately, but um, uh, it's all really only in the last uh, 20,000 years or so that, um, uh, that we've had high enough population densities conceivably to support these kinds of diseases. Um, and uh, that's because, um, well, it's, it's probably really only in the last 10,000 years even, but it, it, the domestication of plants and animals only began about 20,000 years ago. And um, it's that that enables high population density, because if you make a living by hunting and gathering the way our species did for most of its history, and some contemporary humans still do today, um, uh, then uh, for most ecosystems, there's some exceptions like the Pacific Northwest coast of North America, but for most ecosystems, um, resource availability is just not sufficient to support large populations that are sedentary that stay in one place. You know, if you're, you know, gathering tubers and hunting animals, 
um, then um, if there are a lot of you, you have to move fairly frequently because you've eaten up the available resources. If there are fewer of you, um, then you, you still have to move, but just with lower frequency. Um, and those, you know, the, the best reconstructions of ancestral populations are that um, groups were embedded within groups within groups. That is that they were networked to other groups. There was there was long distance trade and exchange. People moved between groups. So disease could conceivably move between small groups, but the total populations were fairly small. And, um, and you know, those interactions would have been intermittent. So a, a, a disease like this one, which, you know, either you die or you recover fairly quickly from, um, may not have had the opportunity. It, presumably, zoonotic diseases repeatedly, you know, throughout human history have jumped into human populations, but it wouldn't have had the opportunity to become as widespread as this is now. Um, and that means that diseases like this may not have exercised selective pressure on our disease avoidance psychology. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, if you think about it, the idea of air being contaminated invisibly and undetectably really is hard to kind of get your head around, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this is right or not, but I read somewhere that a mathematician had calculated um, that all of the SARS-CoV-2 virons in the world would fit inside a soda can, right? That's how small they are, right? It's just mind boggling, right? Well, you know, we can't really get our heads around something like that being in the air that you can't see, you can't smell, you can't hear, right? Um, and so it's possible that we're just poorly prepared for it. And, and our disgust reactions instead um, uh, are targeted toward, um, you know, uh, pathogens that are not respiratory tract pathogens per se, but rather gastrointestinal pathogens, for example. You know, we're very sensitive to feces and vomit, um, uh, some pathogens transmissible through urine and so on, right? That is bodily fluids um, uh, are very prominent and, and seemingly universal uh, disgust illustrators. And I say seemingly because the evidence is, you know, far from conclusive on that, but it seems likely. Um, and those have nothing to do really with, you know, a disease like this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, with Josh Ackerman right now, he previously has, has published some work on sounds that are disgusting um, and we're continuing to pursue that to see whether, you know, in fact, things like breathing, for example, or mm -hmm. even coughing, um, are not inherently disgusting, but the sounds of defecation or vomiting, um, mm -hmm. those are disgusting. You might ask why we're using sounds, and the answer is because we know that visual stimuli can be very, very, you know, um, uh, salient as disgust elicitors. Um, but of course, there is no visual stimulus for a respiratory tract infection, right? Um, you don't see anything after that person has exhaled. Um, so long answer to your short question, which is um, there are really important um, scientific questions about uh, disgust and its relationship to disease avoidance that are very relevant to the pandemic. My lab hasn't been investigating those so far, but we're starting to, to, to work with others who have. So are you, what sort of, do you have examples for behaviors that seem maladapted? Like are there, are there things that you can readily point out that people are doing that seem to be, uh, you know, illogical from the perspective of uh, stopping the disease transmission? Yeah, so there actually some aspects of our evolved psychology are very relevant, um, particularly now as in, you know, 
um, the the fortunate countries of the global north um, are starting to open up more um, as a consequence of, of you know vaccine availability, um, and that's that. Um, uh, and this again, it's not my own work, but that of colleagues. Um, uh, there is emerging evidence, um, uh, some evidence from uh, baboons and some evidence from human beings, um, that um, there is. Well, there's there's a basic problem that any living thing faces, and, and anything, any any organism that has agency that moves in the world. Okay, I mean, plants actually have similar kinds of problems, but their decision matrix is somewhat different. Um, but anything that moves in the world has um, competing goals with regard to how to use time, energy, attention. Right? There, these are zero sum resources. Uh, and um, sometimes the the problem is just one of allocation. The more you do something, the less you can do something else. Okay, um, but sometimes the goals are inherently incompatible, mm -hmm. and um, one of those would be the the importance of social interaction and social support in a social species like our own versus the importance of disease avoidance. Right. Mm -hmm. So one sure way that you can avoid, you know, getting COVID is be a hermit, right? <laughs> Never interact with another person and you won't get COVID, right? Um, uh, because it is, you know, it, it, it doesn't persist long in the environment. It's person to person transmission, right? Um, uh, um, it, but obviously, in any social species like our own, um, social interactions are really, really important determinants of fitness, right? That is social support in political contests, whether they're, you know, um, violent or nonviolent is a, just a, a characteristic of social animals uh, mm -hmm. with complex behavior. All, you know, social primates have these political alliances. Um, uh, the kind of insurance policy aspect of social relations is really important so that, um, you know, who takes care of you when you're in need? What does need consist of? Well, you're sick, you're injured, um, uh, or, you know, particularly salient for humans, you just came home empty handed that day. Um, so a basic feature of hunting and gathering societies is that they, they all have um, essentially mandatory sharing rules. Um, you can't keep the stuff for yourself. You have to share it with other members of your community. And the reason for that is because it there's too much variance in production, particularly with regard to hunting, um, uh, for it to be sustainable without sharing. Because even the best hunter will come home empty-handed some days, right? But if we pool resources across a number of hunters, then the likelihood that all of us go hungry is much, much smaller. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's a basic feature of the way of life that characterized human beings for you know 99% of our species history that resources get pooled this way. Okay, mm -hmm. So social support is really, really important in a wide variety of aspects. And we see that in, in, in fundamental aspects of human mental and physical health. So we know, for example, that um, that loneliness is a risk factor for um, you know for things like depression, but it's also a risk factor. It, 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 it's very likely that this is one of the things that determines, for example, disease severity in COVID nineteen. How much social support do you have, right? And we're we're actually about on, uh, this week we're launching a major COVID study 
um, uh, not related to disgust, um, that includes measures asking, you know, what kind of social support do you have? Because the health psychology literature is very clear on this. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so um, across the board, we know that positive social interactions, thus are really, really important. And we know that um, you know, social interactions are, are the way through which disease transmission for many diseases, including this one, occurs, right? So we have a basic conflict there, right? You can't, you can't maximize outcomes on both goals, okay? Um, uh, now, sometimes those kinds of conflicts in natural selection, um, uh, when they have been chronic, as it were, when they are an inherent feature of the, the, the trade-offs between goals, um, uh, natural selection resolves those for the individual, as it were. That is, um, it's not a decision that, that the individual needs to make so much as it is that the prioritization of those goals automatically shunts effort toward the pursuit of one or the other as a function of need. Okay. So, um, to, to choose a, you know, a readily accessible example in the discussed realm, Think about how you feel if um, you've just had a big meal, you know, you're, you're, you're full and you're, you know, quite satisfied with everything and you're enjoying a dessert, maybe some cookies or something, and, and you, you know, you knock one of those cookies off the plate and it falls on the ground, okay? And maybe you're dining at an outdoor cafe or you have a lot of dogs in the house or whatever and the floor is kind of dirty, okay? And it falls on the ground, okay? And you look at that cookie and you think, eh, cookies kind of dirty. Well, that's all right. There, there'll be more cookies in the future. Okay. But now imagine if you haven't eaten in two days. Okay. Your reaction to the contamination of that cookie is going to be entirely different. Right. And in fact, sometimes it's said that like hunger is the best appetizer. That is food tastes really, really good if you're really hungry and you're the scope of things that appeal to you will be much larger. Right. My wife always says, you know, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry because you end up like buying all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily buy. Oh, that looks good. That looks good. Right. Um, uh, your prioritization between, you know, getting calories and nutrients versus avoiding disease shifts as a function of your current need state, mm -hmm. okay? And it does that without you thinking about it. You don't say to yourself, well, I really need the calories right now, so I think I'm just going to follow the 30-second rule and, and, and blow on that cookie, and that'll make it clean enough for me to eat, right? Um, uh, your I don't know what your hunger mean. naturally modulates your disgust. Well... There, there is a, there is a somewhere. There's an algorithm that is calculating which of those priorities gets pursued, and it doesn't. I mean, uh, you know, using that kind of language makes it sound like it's very mechanical. It can be simply a function of um, distributed information processing in a neural network that whichever set of neurons is being more strongly activated um, uh, wins out in the prioritization. Mm -hmm. in the, at, at least in the, in the early days of, of working on neural networks in, in cognitive science and in, in um, uh, describing metaphorically the way that this parallel distributed processing can work, um, investigators used uh, the, the metaphor of demons, right? Where all the demons are are yelling. They all have mm -hmm. a goal, okay? And and when there's one network that is yelling louder, its voice gets heard. So obviously it's a metaphorical description of what's happening inside a network. But um, something like that is 
acting as if there was a built-in decision mechanism that prioritizes one of these goals over the other. Okay, we, now let's We have go actual back. tests. Sorry to interrupt you. We have actual sure. tests that can uh, sort of see this network behavior in, in the brain. Oh, that's beyond my scope. So I, I, I do virtually no neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have five toes on each foot. They, they range in size from the big helix to the little tiny baby toe. And mm -hmm. the tip of my baby toe occasionally dips into the neuroscience waters, but that's not really what I do. So mm -hmm. um, I, I can't speak to that. Um, okay. I, I do know that in, for example, artificial intelligence, that that building what are at least conceptually similar systems of distributed processing through networks um, is one of the sort of principal tools in building artificially intelligent systems, right? There's no homunculus. There's no, you know, in your brain, there is no person in charge, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're just a whole bunch of neurons networked together, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and, and, and different constellations of neurons are, are performing different adaptive functions. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, and we know anatomically, you know, disgust seems importantly related to the insula and the brain, for example, but none of this is stuff that I do. Okay. I'm just a consumer <laughs> of this information. And I would say not a very good systematic consumer at that. Okay. Because time allocation problems. I mean, I'd of read course. neuroscience all day if I had another life or something, but I don't. Um, uh, so now let's get back to the pandemic, right? Um, and the kind of pressing problems in front of us. Um, well, what's happening as, you know, as economies and societies are starting to open up, and we've seen this occur repeatedly, if there have been attempts to, you know, to, um, uh, to reduce lockdowns and so on. What, what do people do? They rush to see their friends and relatives, okay? <laughs> Um, and they say, I need to see them. Right. And I totally understand this myself. Like I'm, you know, I'm not just an investigator. I'm a person. Right. I mean, I, I, I miss my daughter and son-in-law. I miss my grandchildren. I miss my brother and sister-in-law, niece, and nephew, and so on. Right. I'd, I'd love to go and see them. I miss my father. Um, uh, but um, the problem is when people rush to see their relatives, <laughs> they don't see them as disease transmission risks. Mm -hmm. Right. That is just like the cookie when you're hungry just doesn't seem dirty. OK, well, you know, how could it possibly be that, you know, that my granddaughter, how could she be infectious? That my loving she, father. She, exactly. <laughs> hey, it couldn't possibly be. Right. I mean, that is because the trade-off has already been performed for you. It's not mm -hmm. a decision that you make as to how those goals get prioritized because you know, close social relationships are so important and have always been so important in human survival, right? Political alliances, you know, mutual aid, mm -hmm. insurance, all of these, you know, e economic, you know, uh, continuity, all of these things that are just fundamental to the way that our species has existed for the majority of its, its history. Um, uh, that's a very high priority. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially what we see sort of historically in epidemics and pandemics is it's only when things are just completely, you know, just all hell is broken loose and people are dying right and left, uh, often in, you know, sort of gruesome fashion, something like Ebola, for example, or, you know, the Black Plague, um, 
then what starts to happen is sometimes the bonds of society all break down and people kind of do a, you know, every person for themselves thing. They abandon their families and things like that. It doesn't always happen, but it has happened historically, periodically, when things are really, really, really bad. And under those circumstances, it may be that your close friends and family members seem like they could be contagious. That is, you're just, you know, you avoid everyone. Mm -hmm. But short of that extreme circumstance, it's very hard to get your head around the idea that that those individuals are contagious, okay? So um, because the, you know, the algorithm has already performed the trade-off for you. And so, you know, one big risk that we will start to see happening essentially right now as, as you and I are mm -hmm. speaking, and we have seen episodically occur when lockdowns have been relaxed over the course of the last year and so on, when precautions have been reduced and so on, lockdowns are just an extreme version of precautions, is that the first thing that people do is they go and see their relatives and friends and they don't treat them as if there's a disease risk and then mm -hmm. you get, you know, transmission. This, I, I suppose this is one of the reasons why I started to become more interested in the topic recently because, you know, I'd be walking along with someone I knew or I'd be, I'd watch someone who I uh, had known for some time who would uh, avoid strangers like the plague. They'd see someone without a, a mask on, they'd be disgusted and they, they'd want them to keep away. But the second they bumped into a friend or a family member in the street, they would immediately act as though that person isn't capable of uh, transmitting the disease. I guess on the other side as well, uh, sadly, I, I also saw people, not friends, but people I know who would avoid Asians and this sort of thing. So, so really loony behavior. And, and I guess that's when I started thinking uh, more in depth about uh, disgust. But actually before going in that direction, I, I wanna take a step back and I wanna ask, you know, how did you actually start being interested in the topic more generally? Outside of COVID, taking a step back, what, what was it that first caught your attention? Well, it's a long time ago, so I'm trying to reconstruct what the actual history was. But um, I think that there were, um, there were two sort of, you know, phenomena in the world that just caught my attention um, and had me scratching my head. Um, and um, one of them was uh, pregnancy sickness, sometimes called morning sickness. So the nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, right? Um, where concentrated in the first trimester, um, you know, uh, women not only experience nausea and vomiting, but their, um, their, their taste preferences change. They develop aversions as well as cravings. Um, and that whole phenomenon just seemed really puzzling to me. Like, what is going on there? Okay. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm happy to share the ideas I had at the time, which were, were kind of in parallel invention by um, uh, myself and some other investigators. You know, we were just overlapping with each other. Um, um, uh, Paul Sherman and, and uh, Sam Flaxman um, had a piece that predated mine. Um, we were working on the topics at the same time. I'm not entirely confident that those ideas are right now. Um, uh, um, but the idea was, I'm not certain. Let me put it that way. I don't know. I don't know the answer. The idea was that, um, that, uh, and here again, we have a sort of a trade-off between goals. Okay. So, um, you know, internal fertilization and gestation are, um, you know, really, really fancy, um, uh, adaptations. Well, they're parts of adaptations because they allow for reproduction 
in a way that the conceptus is 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 buffered from the environment, right? Um, you know, uh, if, if you're a you know an oyster and you just put your eggs out there in the in the ocean, right? Well, lots of things can happen to them, and you can't maintain your investment in them. You can't keep investing more and more. Okay, so you know these are huge evolutionary innovations, um, but uh, they come with a problem inherent in them, and that's that your immune system, you know, patrols your body looking for foreign material, basically, um, uh, looking for pathogens, bacteria, viruses, um, parasites that have gotten in there uh, and attacking them. And um, by its very nature in sexual reproduction, the conceptus is only 50% related to the mother, right? So you have a problem. Um, that problem is you know, there's huge benefits to, you know, gestation, but there's this immune system that has to do its job and it attacks things that are not me, right? Um, well, that gets, that trade-off gets resolved in favor of reproduction in that um, uh, the immune system is damped down in some important ways. It's modulated, right? And um, this is, you know, one of the reasons that pregnant women need to take particular precautions about, and in fact, if you go to the grocery store, if you, at least in the United States, and I would imagine probably in the EU as well, you know, if you look at soft cheeses, there'll be warning labels saying, you know, or, or you know, um, uh, packages of meat, for example, right? Um, there'll be warning labels saying pregnant women need to exercise caution about these. Cat litter has always got these on them because cats carry a parasite called um, uh, uh, T. gondii that causes a, 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 you know, pretty significant disease in, in, in during pregnancy, right? So um, there's this modulation of the immune system that allows tolerance of the half foreign conceptus, right? But at the same time, it's happening at kind of the worst possible point because um, uh, the conceptus is, by virtue of the fact that it is developing rapidly and it's early in its developmental trajectory, it's very vulnerable to insult. So if you think about, think about an arrow like leaving a bow, okay? And imagine that you have some sort of superhuman abilities and you can flick the arrow while it's in flight. If you give it a little flick when it's, you know, one centimeter away from the target, well, it doesn't really make very much difference in terms of where it ends up on the target. But if you give it a little flick just when it leaves the bow, it's going to miss the target and the hay bale entirely, right? So the, the earlier in development that any perturbation of the trajectory occurs, the more significant the outcome will be, okay? So, you know, this is a bad time to start becoming more tolerant of the possibility of infection, as it were, right? Well, you know, you can't, there's no way to resolve that that trade-off in terms of the goals of, of gestation, right? But there is something else that you can do, and that's that you can increase the cost that you're willing to pay for behavioral avoidance of possible sources of contamination, okay? Because there's always a trade-off. Think about the cookie on the ground, right? You know, do you eat it and get the calories and the nutrients? Or do you avoid it and reduce your risk of, of, of you know, ingesting pathogens, okay? There's a trade-off between those two things. Well, um, the more that you invest in disease avoidance, it comes at costs. It comes at energy costs. It comes at attentional costs. It comes at opportunity costs, whether you eat the cookie or not, right? <laughs> um, uh, uh, what economists would call an opportunity cost, right? Um, uh, and... Um, so my idea and Paul Sherman and, and Sam Flaxman's idea was that um, this, you know, these changes in the first trimester 
reflect an upregulation of disease avoidance during a period of vulnerability, right? So you, 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 to tolerate the conceptus, you have to change some functioning in the immune system, but you can try and compensate that for that because it's now worth paying more to avoid disease behaviorally, okay? Um, uh, and subsequently, that idea, um, uh, which uh, was developed by my colleague Diana Fleischman and I, we, we subsequently came to call it the compensatory prophylaxis hypothesis, that basically you would expect there to be an, an, an increase in the motivation to avoid cues of disease as a function of vulnerability. One version of that has to do with, well, just, you know, what is the individual's um, uh, intrinsic capacity? What, how, what's the quality of their immune system? But another uh, idea of it, and the one that Diana Fleischman and I developed, was that progesterone is the, the hormone that um, is, you know, rising um, in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle after conception, the opportunity for conception um, has taken place around ovulation. And if, if conception and implantation occur, then progesterone keeps rising into pregnancy. And so our idea was it's progesterone that is the proximate cue or the proximate trigger of this change in um, investment in behavioral avoidance. Okay. So do you see that with the pill um, as well then? Uh, well, the actual amount of progesterone in the pill is very small. Okay, mm -hmm. so in fact, you know, the the the, the pill contains the, the modern pill contains very very low levels of exogenous hormones. It doesn't take very much to keep ovulation from occurring. Okay, but say for My, example, uh, you decided to you didn't care about ethics and you just gave someone a bunch of progesterone. Uh, would you expect that person to become extraordinarily disease sen uh, disgust sensitive? Or so that was the hypothesis, and 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 we had results consistent with that hypothesis, and I was fairly confident that the hypothesis was right. And this is, you know, we're now talking in terms of you know personal history here. We're now talking what uh, a decade plus um, after I first became interested in pregnancy, right? I'm now now we're looking at changes across the menstrual cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, levels of progesterone fluctuate. Um, they're, they're, they're very low. Um, uh, then ovulation occurs in the middle of the cycle in, if, if you know, the woman is naturally cycling of reproductive age and, 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 and has an ovulatory cycle. Not all cycles are ovulatory. Um, uh, and then about a week after that, progesterone starts to rise. If conception and implantation take place, then progesterone continues to rise into pregnancy. And if it doesn't, then it drops off. Okay. Um, and, and, it, and it's known that progesterone has some immunomodulating effects. Okay. Um, uh, so, um, you know, for example, um, uh, uh, yeast infections tend to get worse um, in the mid-luteal phase, right? And um, uh, autoimmune diseases that are characterized by excess inflammation, um, things like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, get better, and they get better in pregnancy, okay? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, um, you know, there, there was sort of, you know, a priori reason to think that the system might work mm -hmm. this way. Um, and uh, and I and, and other investigators were, you know, collecting increasing evidence that this was, you know, um, that this compensatory prophylaxis hypothesis was right, that the, 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 the more progesterone that was there, the more disgust sensitive a woman would become. Mm. Uh, and then uh, uh, Benedict Jones in, in Scotland, um, uh, who had, you know, 
he and his collaborators, Lisa De Bruyne and others, um, they had they had previously collected evidence that that supported the um, uh, compensatory prophylaxis hypothesis. They did a a really well designed, um, a well powered study, and didn't find any evidence in support. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> so now we're back to, and then since then, some other work has been published that says, well, maybe there is, okay. <laughs> um, maybe progesterone is, you know. Were they using animal uh, models okay. or something different to you? No, no, they... no. They were using, they were using humans with, you know, very uh, precise measurements of including hormonal assays and, right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was a very well designed study, much you know, much more thorough than anything that that um, either Ben and his colleagues or I and Diana had done previously. Okay, so right now, um, you know, if you're a, a, a betting person, I would bet against the prophylaxis compensatory prophylaxis hypothesis, at least this version of it. Right, the other versions which have to do with what is your immune system doing right now. Like if we give you a vaccination and we turn on your immune system to really you know fight aggressively against the antigen, is that going to change your disgust rea- reactions? Um, that that there's less work in that area. There is some work on um, just what is the person's basic immune profile, sort of how competent is their immune system, and how does that relate to disgust? And and that tends to support this idea, right? Um, uh, so so the people the, with compromised immune systems also become nauseous and have uh, signs of disgust. So, for example, are people with AIDS or people who've been through chemotherapy or do you yeah. See, so do you the, see that? that's that's a the, the the problem is there are confounds there. Okay, that is the disease state or the the therapy itself mm-hmm. affects other aspects of the system. So that by itself, you know, those kinds of interventions by the world as it were those are not a those are not a ready avenue for um for investigating this right Mm -hmm. um uh but there's natural variation among people in terms of you know their their uh, immunocompetence in in individuals who don't have any you know substantial disease right there's no autoimmune disease that's affecting that or something like that uh and there is some evidence i wouldn't say it's it's definitive um that uh that uh that both between individuals and within individuals as a function of changes in them that discuss sensitivity compensates for lower efficacy um, uh, uh, with regard to the immune system's ability to protect from pathogens. But, um, you know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that we have conclusive kind of, you know, take to the bank evidence on any of these different facets of this idea. It's very plausible that one way or another that some of this compensation is taking place, right? And I mean, just think about the cookie example, okay, mm-hmm. right? So if you're, you know, if, if the if, if the algorithms in your head can regulate that trade-off based on the hunger signals and, you know, the your, your, your you know, indications of caloric availability, um, there's every reason to think they should be, you know, sensitive to what's going on with your immunocompetence as well. Um, uh, so it's not it's not unreasonable to suppose that the systems are designed with that trade-off in mind also. Um, but I would say that at present, you know, and now we're talking, you know, um, 20 plus years since I first got interested in the topic, right? Um I don't know, you know, it's and 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 it's and going back to pregnancy, it's very likely that pregnancy sickness, the nausea and vomiting mm-hmm. of pregnancy, um, that that's a byproduct of mm-hmm. it. It doesn't have anything to do, to do with, with mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's not progesterone at all. I guess um, another uh, group of people would be organ recipients, right? They because they're not. I get well. They they're not well, but I imagine I imagine they're not sick the whole way through uh, the remainder of their life after receiving a uh, an organ, and then their immune system is greatly reduced, right? Yeah, it is. That is, they have to take medications for the rest of their life to suppress. Um, I mean, it's basically, it's the same problem as pregnancy, if you think about it, because, you know, if you got somebody else's kidney, it's, it, 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 in, in many ways, it's like having an embryo in your uterus, right? That is, there's, there's something that isn't you that's in you and that will be attacked by your immune system. Um, uh, and, and in fact, um, the, the, the genes that are critical in regulating or not in regulating, but in. Uh, allowing for the self-other differentiation, they're called the the major histocompatibility complex um, uh, genes in humans, and they're highly variable. So it's the most variable part of the genome from one individual to the other, because those genes are coding for the cell surface proteins that are the the sort of secret handshake that tells the body, yeah, I'm part of the team, right? And so they have to. It's like any good password; it has to be very variable, right? Um, uh, um, and uh, it's called the histocompatibility complex because it's about the compatibility of tissues, right? So you're absolutely right that organ um, uh, uh, transplant recipients are uh, immunosuppressed exogenously. Now, how does that d affect their disgust reactions? I don't know that that particular population has been studied. Um, uh, it's possible that it has, I don't know. Um, but the drugs themselves may have other effects, right? That is, and, and people are told you are at risk of dying if you get sick, right? Right, because so they you, avoid... You, mm. so, so, you know, and, and this is something that we haven't talked about with disgust is that it's not that it's that the mechanism is there and it's fixed. It is, like, like most aspects of the mind, it is very susceptible to learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we as a species, you know, we're not particularly formidable creatures, right? I mean, we can't run very fast. We don't have big teeth. We're not huge. We, you know, we don't have big claws. You know, our success as a species hinges really on, you know, uh, two things, which is cooperation, as I said earlier, and the ability to learn from others and cumulative cultural evolution, whereby, you know, the group develops increasingly successful ways of addressing the challenges in its environment, right? So, you know, anything that's important about human psychology is going to have a, a, a learning facility in it. It's going to be built in there, right? Um, uh, you know, humans have always occupied very diverse ecosystems, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and our predecessor species did did as well. It's not that they only lived on the savanna. That's mm -hmm. you know certainly was an important crucible for human evolution. But you know, as populations grew and expanded, they moved into lots of different ecosystems. And 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 you know, the history of of humanity is is living in many many different environments. Well, there are going to be some things like feces and vomit that are going to be a disease risk wherever you are, and there are going to be a lot of other things that might vary from place to place. Okay. Um, uh, and including things like how you prepare particular foods. It's, it's edible and even palatable if you do it one way, and it's dangerous if you do it another way, right? So the systems are, they have built into them the possibility of learning. Well, your doctor tells you, if you get a common cold that other people get, you might die, right? <laughs> you can adjust your frame of reference and your behavior, and you do that long enough and it will start to be that you are more disgust sensitive. You're not just, you know, 
self-consciously enacting those rules. And clear evidence of this, for example, are food taboos, right? So, you know, if you're a devout Muslim or a devout Jew and, 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 and pork is, you know, is, is taboo for you, um, the prospect of eating it may be nauseating. Mm -hmm. And I've actually seen where people ingested it without realizing it, right? Devout individuals who, you know, I mean, there was just a, there's a mix up, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't, you know, there was miscommunication and they vomited. Okay. That is, you know, and it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to stick my finger down my throat because I understand that I have in, unintentionally violated this taboo. And because I want to follow the taboo. No, it was, I am absolutely disgusted by what has happened to me. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, the, the system is very, very amenable to learning in some dimensions. So, you know, organ transplant patients, not an ideal population to study the question of, you know, how much of the algorithm is, is, is doing the work you know, automatically by, by gauging immunocompetence and adjusting behavioral prophylaxis because they already know. They, they know long before they have the transplant, right? So it, it sounds like it's really hard to find a control group for any sort of study then. I mean, it, it must be very uh, well, tricky. I mean, there's, na there's natural variation. So there's naturally occurring variation in people's, um, uh, in, you know, the, the effectiveness of their immune system. Um, uh, and um, then there are non-disease-causing interventions like vaccination, right, mm -hmm. um, uh, where you're provoking an immune response, but there is no actual disease, okay? Mm -hmm. And the fact that there is no actual disease is important because you want to differentiate information in the brain that is only coming from the immune system and that that's changing how the body and the, and, and, mm -hmm. and the mind, um, you know, interact with the world versus any intrinsic consequence of the infection itself, Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, there, it's not that these experiments, you know, or studies can't be done. They can. They're just a lot more challenging than the kind of thing that folks like me who, you know, end up sometimes looking under the lamppost, right, have done where, you know, well, OK, we ask women, you know, where they are in the menstrual cycle. We show them mm -hmm. some gross pictures and, you know, we make <laughs> comparisons. Right. It's a lot easier to do that work. Um, yeah. So, um You've mentioned that there are a few different types of disgust. So how, you know, I, I guess there's disgust of insects, there's disgust of smells, sexual disgust, even political disgust and moral disgust. How do these relate to each other? Are, are they the same emotion? Is it the same brain architecture that controls uh, the, these these emotions? So uh, the answer is yes and no. Um, uh, as far as we know right now, um, uh, and I'm, I'm not being coy there. I, I mean that in the sense that, um, that there is overlap, varying degrees of overlap between all of these things that English speakers call disgust. Okay. Um, uh, but there's also evidence for divergence and specialization. So let me start with insects. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is work that I've been doing for a few years with um, my uh, colleague, Tom Kupfer, who's at um, Nottingham Trent in the UK. And um, uh, we have been working on um, differential reactions to ectoparasites and to pathogens, more, more specifically to cues of the presence of ectoparasites and cues of the presence of pathogens. Because if you think about the behavioral responses that are adaptive in protecting against these two um, uh, fitness-reducing features of the environment, the, the effective behaviors are really different, okay? If, if there is um, uh, a pathogen in your environment, 
Avoidance is your initial thing. Just stay away from it, right? Um, and um, if you've been contaminated with it, then cleaning, right? Try and try and you know clean yourself. But the big risk, of course, is ingestion. Okay, mm -hmm. um, and that's the big risk for two reasons. One, that's the principal way that stuff outside of us gets inside of us, right? You got to eat to live, and that means that parts of the world are going to get inside you. Okay. And the second is that um, if your immune system's job is to attack things that don't have the, the secret handshake, the cell surface proteins coded for by the major histocompatibility complex that tell the body this is a healthy member of the team, right? If you don't have that, then the immune system needs to attack it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how can you eat and do that? Because you're constantly ingesting proteins that are not you, okay? Mm -hmm. And the answer is you have to have some system that says, oh, stuff that came in through this one portal is really different and we should treat it differently. Mm -hmm. And um, in medicine, it's called oral tolerance, which is basically that things that enter your body through the mouth are not treated with the same degree of aggressive defense as things that get in other ways, okay? Um, and uh, the because you'd constantly be developing food allergies otherwise, right? That is, your immune system would build antigens to foreign proteins that you've eaten, okay? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, most people have no food allergies and arguably even the prevalence of food allergies in, you know, um, in technologically advanced societies today is a feature of evolutionary disequilibrium. That is that 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 we live in a world that's just too different. It's too clean, importantly. Um, uh, and so our immune systems are badly calibrated. But that's an aside. The point here is that stuff that comes into your body through your mouth has to be treated differently or you couldn't eat and stay alive. OK, mm -hmm. Um and the consequence of that is that that's the big risk factor for contamination, right? That's where pathogens can can both get in because you're taking outside stuff in and they can proliferate because you're kind of looking the other way from the perspective of immunity. Um, it's not that the, the gut doesn't have all kinds of immune defenses. It does. But material has to be tolerated that mm -hmm. it, to a degree that it doesn't have to be tolerated elsewhere in the body. Um, so... Um, uh microbes um uh the, the 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 big risk and this gets back to what i said earlier about the possibility that we're just poorly prepared for respiratory viruses right um uh as as a disease threat um uh you know the the way that microbes can get in and do a lot of damage is principally through the mouth mm -hmm. and so um uh nausea what is nausea well it's it's um reducing your appetite so right away it's saying you know <laughs> the the importance of getting food Stop has eating. now been reduced relative to the importance of something else and that something else is whoa there you know we seem to be in the presence of pathogens okay mm -hmm. and vomiting of course is the kind of last ditch effort right like whoa we it's might have quite gotten it quick as well right i mean when you get food poisoning you really do feel it quite uh, quite quickly uh, so food poisoning, right now we're just talking about disgust, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about food poisoning. Food poisoning utilizes the same um, uh, physiological system, but doesn't have the same psychology attached to it. So if you get food poisoning, you you um, will you know feel nauseous and, 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 and may vomit, um, but you're not necessarily disgusted, okay? Mm -hmm. 
You might be disgusted by your own vomit or something like that, which is just, that's just a byproduct. There's nothing, you know, I mean, you know, your own product shouldn't necessarily disgust you um, uh, very much. I mean, be a mistake to ingest your own vomit if the whole function of vomiting is to, is to get rid of stuff, right? Um, there are, there are species that do that. So dogs uh, do it. Canids, <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Because they don't have hands. They cache their young. The way that they bring food back to their pups is in their stomachs. Mm. Right. I, I thought about so, that. This is why your dog, you know, licks your face when you come home, because that's how puppies, dogs are basically, you know, wolves that never grew up. Uh, we, we've, huh. we've selected for infantile and juvenile characteristics in dogs because it, it makes them more compatible with human beings. Wait, so do um, wolves have the same behavior? Sorry for interrupting you. Sure, do sure, sure. A, a wolf, you know, goes out, she goes out and hunts, right? She's got some meat. She eats the meat. She comes back to the den. The pups run to the, you know, the mouth of the den and then they lick around her muzzle and that stimulates her to regurgitate the the meat that she's ingested and the the pups now have this wonderful meal of you know partially digested meat that they can eat okay so vomit is not disgusting to dogs because that's how they you know that's how baby wolves get their food okay i did not know that Uh, um uh and so you know if you my i've i've had dogs for many years i've you know if you have dogs, you're going to be cleaning up dog puke. It's just part of having a dog, okay? And 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 one reason is because they are scavengers as well as hunters, and so they they eat a wide variety of things. They're 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 very happy to experiment, and they can tolerate pathogen you know bearing materials that humans could never tolerate. They can eat you know roadkill that would make you very ill, and they're, they're fine, right? Um, but when they do vomit, they don't. They're not necessarily avoidant of their own vomit and they may re-ingest it okay um uh, because they, there's this conflict between the system that brings food back to the den and another system which is about disease avoidance and and dogs by virtue of human domestication we've just kept them as babies mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. anyway um uh so where was i oh food poisoning um if you get food poisoning and you you know vomit um you're not necessarily disgusted at the time what will happen is that you will thenceforth be disgusted by that food item um, or at least and this is one of the things that ties back to the ideas about pregnancy um so you know both uh, paul sherman and sam flaxman and myself you know we determined through surveying the literature that animal product foods meat in particular is the the most likely target of gestational aversions, right? Mm-hmm. And and the rationale that we provided for that, and I still have no idea whether there's anything to this or not, because it's looking more and more like that, like at least the nausea and vomiting are byproducts, and and maybe the 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 t- changes in taste are as well in preference. Um, but the idea was, look, meat is you know a mixed bag. Um, uh, meat has been crucial to human evolution it's not now necessary for health you know with 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 modern technology you can live a very healthy life and probably in 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 most circumstances a healthier life by eating little or no meat Um, but that wasn't true for most of human evolution and and our entire you know adaptive complex is built around meat eating we have we have guts that are way shorter than you would expect for our body size uh, and brains that are way bigger and energetically very expensive. Um, our basal metabolic rate is basically what you would expect for a mammal of our size. So how can we afford this metabolically very expensive brain? And the answer is with a really short gut. Um, this is what's called the expensive tissue hypothesis, um, first posited by Leslie Aiello. Um, uh, 
you know, how can you afford a short gut? Well, if the animals that you eat have already done most of the work of turning stuff in the world into the building blocks that you need, then you don't need as efficient a digestive system, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, gorillas are like cows. They have this big protuberant belly because it's really long digestive tract. They're folivores. They, they spend all day eating leaves like cows spend all day eating grass, right? A really long digestive tract because leaves are very low in caloric and nutritional content, right? So you have to have this really, really extensive GI tract to extract a lot of nutrition from it. But, you know, we don't. We have a very cheap GI, and that's because we, you know, um, uh, we ate things that had already done most of the work for us, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so meat, you know, critical in human evolution, a key part, we have a whole, you know, adaptive complex built around meat eating. But it's a mixed bag because, you know, when a plant dies, um, its chemical defenses against disease continue for a while. It wilts, right? If you harvest the lettuce, it wilts. But but the but animals have active immune systems, and when the animal dies, everything shuts off. So the meat mm -hmm. just starts to rot, right, right away. Okay. Um, so uh, um, uh, meat's a very mixed bag this way, and um, in both humans and rats, rats are generalists like humans are. They wide you know, a fairly broad diet and they eat meat. And both humans and rats, um, uh, um, if we poison you and make you sick, say with chemotherapy, right? Or, you know, you just got a bad meal at a restaurant, whatever it was, um, you will preferentially thereafter develop uh, what's called a conditioned taste aversion that lasts about 10 years. And it will target things on the basis of two criteria, either meat, okay, mm -hmm. or some other related animal product, or novelty. Um, if you've never eaten that thing before and you ate it now, um, then, you know, it's logical that that would be the thing that you would avoid because mm -hmm. you can get sick eating all the other stuff, right? Um, uh, and uh, actually, oncologists know this so that if they're giving a patient chemotherapy, for example, and they know that it's going to provoke nausea and vomiting, um, they, they, they sometimes will have the person eat something really unusual that they have not eaten before and they're not likely to eat again. And then they'll just get this, you know, you know, cost-free condition yeah. taste aversion, right? Because, you know, to eat some strange spice that's not part of your culture's cuisine, well, it doesn't cost you anything not to like that, right? But if, you know, you're all about burgers and fries and from now on you're fine with the bun, the lettuce and the fries, but you can't stand the, the burger, well, that's going to interrupt your life, mm -hmm. okay? Um, uh, um, I, I anyways, guess this is one was... of the real-world applications of your work or... Research. Well, it's not my work. I mean, uh, I, I, they, they, people already knew this long before I got interested. In I, I mean, scientists right like yourself, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, this was in a tangent because you asked about you know disgust after food poisoning, and the answer is you're not actually disgusted by the food at the time that you're vomiting. It's mm -hmm. only once that information gets registered in the library, as it were, that mm -hmm. now okay, that's you know no more chicken parmesan or whatever it is, right? Um, uh, I, I can't stand that thing. Um, uh, but that's different. Now, why do we start talking about that? That's different than um, uh, than ordinary disgust in the absence of, say, food poisoning. Right. Mm. So originally the question was, uh, what do the different types of disgust have to do with each other? Ah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Now we. That's a long. <laughs> We've had two long, tangents. It's fine. Two or three. Yeah. Meta tangents. Tangents on top of tangents. 
Um, uh, so um, to avoid pathogens, you need to protect the oral pathway in particular. You need to protect orifices in general. And in fact, um, uh, my former student, Kevin Haley, and I did work showing that that um, people are sort of more disgust sensitive at the interface with the environment because that's where mm -hmm. behavior can make a difference, right? Um, and um, uh, so something, you know, we, we used a hypothetical organ transplant paradigm. So how gross would it be to have various body parts replaced, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the stuff that's inside people are fine. They're like, I don't know what my spleen does, but if I need a new one, fine, give me a new one. But, you know, a new tongue, hell no, right? Um, okay. Like, I do not want a new tongue, right? New eyeball, new genital opening, new anus, nope, don't want it. Okay, huh. very disgusting, right? Even new skin, right? Because mm -hmm. it's at the interface with the environment. And so, so interface in general, that's what you protect with disgust. That's what you guard. For some reason, when you said skin, that spiked a disgust reaction in my own brain. So is, <laughs> I, the others didn't really. Strange. Well, anyway, uh, you know, a, a lot of people say uh, an eye transplant. No, I would, you know, uh, and we did nasal passage. We had tongue, anus, genital, um, I uh, can't remember them all. And then we had things like liver and lung and mm -hmm. stuff like that. People are fine with internal organ transplants. Yeah, it's all good. But, you know, I, the out because the psychology is concentrated at the interface mm -hmm. of the, mm -hmm. the body and the environment, right? And the mouth is the principal one, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, uh, a rectal thermometer, okay? Like there's an out, a, a part of the outside world going inside you, okay? Mm -hmm. How concerned are you about how like the hygienic precautions taken before the rectal thermometer is inserted versus how concerned are you about the hygienic precautions taken for an oral thermometer? It's strange. I, I think, yeah, there is a big difference. So you understand? Yeah. yeah. It's the mouth, right? Because this oral tolerance problem that that's how the world gets into you is, you know, mm -hmm. Very rarely does stuff get into you through the, the back door. It's mostly through the front door, right? Um, uh, um, uh, and um, so uh, the psychology of disgust that is associated with cues of the presence of pathogens is intimately linked to nausea and vomiting. But we were talking about insects and in particular ectoparasites, right? So creatures that prey on the surface of the body, ticks, mm -hmm. fleas, lice, mosquitoes, etc. right? Leeches, um, uh, you know, being nauseated or even vomiting does nothing to protect you against a tick. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and ectoparasites are a pretty significant selective pressure in, 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 in all animals, um, uh, both because um, you know, it's sort of death by a thousand um, nicks, right? That is, they're they're pulling resources from the host each time um, you're parasitized, uh, and because they're vectors for disease transmission, mm -hmm. right? So, there um, lots and lots of animals have very sophisticated ectoparasite avoidance and and removal mechanisms. Um, so, uh, Tom Cooper at Nottingham Trent and I posited that when people say they're disgusted by ectoparasites. Part of what we're getting there is, um, first of all, the vagaries of the, the, the lexical emotion term, right? So mm -hmm. languages and cultures carve up subjective experience in different ways. 
and, and no one language maps the entire landscape of human emotional experience with discrete lexical labels. Right? So just to give you an example of that, um, think about how you feel if you see a cute baby or a little puppy. Okay. Um, we don't, in, in English, we don't have an emotion term for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, folks that my wife and I worked with for a number of years on the southwest coast of Sumatra, um, they have a word which is something like shivers up your spine. Okay. And um, you can use it in the context of sort of getting the willies when you're in the forest at night and, you know, mm -hmm. their shadows. And you, but but you can also sense. use well, it's a, it's an aversive experience in that context, but you can also use it to describe how you feel when you see a cute baby, right? It's, you know, the best translation would be something like, I'm getting shivers up my spine because I'm overcome by cuteness, right? And I mean, you know, you, your listeners, I'm sure people know what I mean, right? Yeah. What is that experience? We just don't have a word for it, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and it turns out that not having a word for it means you pay less attention to it and you think about it less and so on, right? Well, you know, so what when when English speakers say disgust, that is an imprecise term. It's mm -hmm. it's potentially grouping together a bunch of different experiences that are not isomorphic. They may partially overlap for evolutionary reasons that I'll discuss in a minute, but they aren't necessarily the same thing. So when people say, I'm disgusted by you know, ticks or fleas or lice or, um, mm -hmm. you know, leeches, whatever it is. It's not clear that they're actually saying, I experience the same gastrointestinal symptoms that I have if someone, you know, vomits on me or, you know, I realize I've stepped barefoot in dog feces or something like that. Okay. Um, and, and the adaptive response to, uh, you know, um, the presence of ectoparasites is removal. Okay. Get it off me. Okay, not vomit. But could I ask uh, um, just one quick question? So getting away from language, do, do people in those cases, I, I actually don't know, make sort of this disgust face? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Where people... Yeah. Okay. So we don't actually know the answer to that very well. Um, what we do know, because um, Kupfer and I have done this work with our colleagues, um, including a paper that um, we're about to submit um, uh, revisions on, got pretty favorable reviews. I'm optimistic that it'll be published fairly shortly. Um, in which we show in um, studies of online participants in the United States, a laboratory study at UCLA in California, and an on-the-street study in Shanghai in China, that when you actually ask people more granular questions about things like, does their skin itch? Do, do they feel you know these cutaneous sensations of tickling and... Do they want to scratch, for example, okay? Or do they feel nauseated, loss of appetite, feel like gagging or vomiting, right? So what do we do? We show people videos of, you know, creepy crawler ectoparasites or things like, you know, overflowing filthy toilets, okay? Mm -hmm. And what we get is a divergence where people report these cutaneous sensations they, they, they feel an urge to scratch, their skin prickles, right, um, uh, when they see the ectoparasites and not when they see, you know, dirty toilets, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not that they never report, I feel somewhat nauseated, I feel like gagging, but they do so 
with less frequency and less mm -hmm. extremely, okay? And the converse is true when they're looking at the toilets. Now it's mostly this gastrointestinal stuff and their skin, you know, they, they, they don't feel like scratching when they see a dirty toilet, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, the mechanisms are in fact adaptively distinct, um, addressing different adaptive challenges. Um, does that mean that, well, it's just an accident of language that we call these things by the same emotion term? No, because there is some overlap between the subjective experiences. And probably what that overlap is revealing is what's called um, neural reuse. So if you think about it, you know, if all of these different mechanisms that I've described, they're all, you know, different blades and a very fancy Swiss army knife is the metaphor that, you know, evolutionary psychologists like to use for the, the human mind. That it's not a, it's not a, you know, a computer that has one CPU and, and, you know, that does all the information processing. There are a bunch of specialized mechanisms. Well, each of these mechanisms has to live somewhere in a neural network in the brain. Okay. And, um, as you get more and more complex behavior with more and more, you know, sophisticated adaptive mechanisms addressing challenges in the environment, and keep in mind that humans, you know, live in many ecosystems, they have many different forms of social structure and so on, right? I mean, there's a lot of complexity there. There are many, many adaptive challenges that need these specialized, you know, blades in the Swiss army knife. Well, you know, how do you keep, you know, evolving new mental mechanisms over the course of, you know, not just the last 300,000 years, but the last, you know, call it, um, you know, 3 million years, right? Um, uh, how do you keep evolving these without just having the brain get, you know, unsupportably large, okay? Um, and the answer is in part that you can have the same brain bits do different things by connecting them in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you have a mechanism that serves one adaptive function and there's some features of it that would be useful for another adaptive function by linking up parts of that network to other neurons and i'm being intentionally hand waving here because not just am i ignorant about neuroscience but i don't think anybody actually knows all the details mm -hmm. of this right um if you do that then you know um you can you can keep sort of you know crafting new mechanisms without necessarily needing new real estate, right? And you don't have to keep expanding geographically. You're just reconnecting things that are already there. And um, uh, 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 Terry Deacon at um, uh, University of California, Berkeley, um, who's a neuroscientist, unlike me, um, he likes to use the word kludge to describe the mind, right? So a kludge is, you know, a jury rigged solution by combining the existing things that you have on hand, right? You know, you, you, you come up with a solution by creatively linking up things. So, you know, when I lecture on this, the, the, the slide that I like to show is a, somebody built a, a lawnmower bicycle, right? So they've replaced the front wheel with, you know, the, the, the lower bits of a push mower mm -hmm. and you ride around your lawn, you know, this is a kludge, right? It's a, it's a, you know, it has advantages in that it's making use of what you have, but it's not necessarily the way an engineer would design the product from the start, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's going to have limitations as a consequence of that. And many aspects of the mind have this kludge-like structure to them, including emotions. Um, so... Uh, when our participants report some levels of gastrointestinal symptoms, when they see, you know, ticks, 
uh, or lice, probably what we're getting there is the, the, the overlap in neural networks between the disgust that targets pathogens that could be orally ingested, right, and this ectoparasite defense mechanism. Um, because they're just sharing some real estate there. And, mm. and, and so the system isn't perfectly optimal because it's not functional to have GI symptoms in the presence of ectoparasites, but it's an intrinsic limitation of a kludge that, yeah. that um, you're going to get some compromise in um, perfection this way. So is there, in, in, so is there some conservation of, uh, of disgust sensitivity across these different uh, domains then? So for example, if, if you have someone who's really disgust sensitive to, I don't know, uh, they're very disgust sensitive when it comes to insects, is that person more likely to also be disgust sensitive when it comes to sex or? They, they are. Yeah, they are. Um, now, one explanation for that is that their particular sets of networks for this emotion are, you know, are, are very sensitive. Um, and, and that is possible. Another explanation that we can't really easily differentiate, and that certainly is compatible with other evidence, as I'll describe for a minute, is that this is somebody who is risk averse, okay, mm -hmm. because essentially, these prophylactic mechanisms, whether it's against ectoparasites or pathogens, right, you're paying a cost to avoid a hazard, okay, mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, um, individuals will differ in predictable ways, um, uh, in terms of their willingness to take risks or, you know, pay costs to avoid hazards as it were. Right. Um, so they're going to be life history differences between individuals as a function of their, um, their early childhood environments. Some individuals are on a faster life history trajectory where if they've gotten cues that, that the world is a dangerous place, then it pays to live fast and die young. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, other individuals are going to be on a slower trajectory where if they've gotten cues that the world's a pretty safe place, then it pays to take your time and, and build a very complicated you know, organism. Um, and as a consequence, individuals who are on faster life history trajectories should take more risks across the board, right? including in disease and parasite realms. Um, and individuals who are on slower um, life history trajectories should be more avoidant. Um, uh, biological sex is connected to life history. So mm -hmm. in a effectively polygynous species like ours, which means that the variance in male reproductive success is greater than the variance in female reproductive success. There are going to be some guys who have many offspring and some guys who have few whereas the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful woman is going to be much less. And that's because of the obligate investment in reproduction. So pregnancy and lactation are very expensive. And so that means that in mammals, females are the limiting factor in male reproductive success. There's lots of competition by males for access to females because the obligate investment by males, human males can invest a great deal in reproduction for decades, right? Um, uh, you know, supporting their children, but it's not obligate, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, the obligate investment is very low. Um, I, I often ask my students how long, what the minimum time span for a woman to reproduce is, right? And they, they, they sort of say nine months, and then they think about it, and I say, well, there's no, you know, there are no, you know, food processors. There's no baby food. What's baby going to eat? And they say, okay, well, she's got to nurse the baby. So I add on a, you know, a year or so at least, right? And I say, okay, you know. And, but it's probably you know, more 15 that, years or. Well, in a, in a, in a slow, in a, in a, in a society that 
that prioritizes slow trajectory is like ours. It's going to be, you know, a, a decade and a half to two decades. Um, in in societies where investment in, in human capital, as it were, is is less important to success, it doesn't need to be that long. Mm-hmm. Um, kids can, you know, depending on the ecology, kids kids can start to become kind of economically self sustaining. Um, I mean, they start being meaningful food productors pr- producers in sort of middle childhood, seven eight mm-hmm. years old. Uh, you know, this village in Sumatra that my wife and I worked in. Um, you know, boys by the time that they were eight, nine years old, they were proficient at fishing and at, they'd go out fishing by themselves and often would feed the family for the day, right? Mm. And, and you know, um, so, you know, depending on the ecology and, and the, the social and cultural environment, you know, it doesn't have to be 15 years before a kid is, is really kind of self-sustaining, right? Um, but anyway, you know, it's clearly at least a couple of years. Longer right, than men. In, in minimum. And then, you know, I ask, well, how long does it take for men? And there's always some, you know, um, uh, you know, smart aleck woman in the back of the lecture hall who goes, you know, 30 seconds, right? <laughs> you know, the obligate investment isn't, it, 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 it is just much lower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the consequence of that is that there's greater variance in reproductive success among men than there is among women, which means that there's more competition for access to mates among men than there is among women, which means that men are on a faster life history trajectory than women because taking your time, playing it safe, going slow, and not getting a reproductive opportunity is the same as being dead from the perspective of mm-hmm. natural selection, okay? So um, uh, as a consequence of all of that, um, uh, men die sooner than women, even when we take out accidents and violence, which themselves are forms of risk-taking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh do you know um, if, just... if you take men who are, say, 40 years old, then you compare them to women at 40 years old and look at their life expectancy, do, does that gap reduce or? Yeah, so I'm talking about, uh, so so in, in especially in societies that don't have the privilege of the, the, the remarkable medical, you know, um, facilities that we benefit from, um, you know, child and in particular infant mortality is, is, is much higher. And, and um, uh, if you, you know, if you make it out of childhood, um, so past sort of age five on, you know, you have a decent chance in a, in a hunter-gatherer society of living into your 70s, but women still live um, uh, longer than men do. And, and in a society like the United States, um, after you remove accidents and, and, and violence um, uh, from causes of mortality, the the longevity gap is still about six, seven years. Okay. So it's a long time. Um, it, it is. And you go to a, you know, a, a retirement home, a, you know, a senior facility and, and um, you'll find um, kind of a lot of lonely ladies, right? Cause there'll be more women than there are men um, mm. uh, uh, because of this difference in life history trajectory. The men are investing less in maintenance earlier in life and so they burn out sooner. And the reason they're investing less in maintenance is because they're investing more in competitiveness. That's what testosterone, you know, builds, um, you know, competitive male bodies and comes at the expense of immune function. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, so, uh, you know, like taking exogenous hormones can be, you know, for, for non-medical reasons can be very dangerous because, for example, increased cancer risk in, you know, bodybuilders who use mm-hmm. steroid hormones. Well, you know, your immune system is normally protecting you against cancer and it's not doing its job well um, when you're taking those hormones. So, so men are on a faster life history trajectory than women. Um, men take more risks than women. 
Um, they and correspondingly, they they take fewer precautions. They go to the doctor less often. They report fewer symptoms when they go to the doctor. You know, etc. Right. Um, it's not just you know riding motorcycles. That's those are all manifestations of the same thing. Right. And um, uh, correspondingly, they are less disgust sensitive on average than women are. Okay. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you asked about, you know, correlations between disgust sensitivity across domains of disgust. So ectoparasite versus pathogen versus sexual versus mm -hmm. moral and so on, right? And um, uh, we do find those correlations, but we also find correlations with other aspects of risk versus precaution, right? Um, so it's hard to say how much of it is because of neural reuse and, and overlap in networks in the disgust systems, that those are all just kind of one thing that are, you know, it's, they're all linked to each other. So if it's high on one dimension, it's high on the other dimensions. Mm -hmm. And how much of it is because that is part of a basic strategy where you weigh opportunity against precaution, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, and, and we know even, you know, separate from issues of, of, of male versus female, for example, individuals who report taking, and this is work done by uh, my former postdoc, Adam Sparks, and and um, uh, my longtime collaborator, Colin Holbrook, and I, um, uh, uh, we know that if you ask people about like recreational risk taking, um, you know, and, and precautions that they take and so on, um, individuals who are high on disgust sensitivity are also high in risk avoidance in other domains of life that have nothing to do with disgust, where no one would mm -hmm. ever say, you know, that's an emotion that's relevant to that domain, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and conversely, those who are low on disgust sensitivity take 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 more risks mm -hmm. in those areas, right? They, they take fewer precautions. So it's hard to tease apart those two explanations. One is sort of the whole organism, what's its entire life strategy? Mm -hmm. And the other is the details of the neural architecture. They could both be contributing, mm -hmm. but we do know that there is correlation across domains of disgust. Now, you also asked about sexual disgust and moral disgust. Um, so uh, sexual disgust, uh, and here, for example, you know, there, so there are substantial sex differences between men and women in sexual disgust. That's consistent with the greater female investment, obligate investment in reproduction that, mm -hmm. you know, female mammals should be more selective about their partners than male mammals are because they have more at stake in each reproductive event. Um, uh, and sexual disgust is basically the reaction that is telling you this individual is a poor reproductive partner. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, that might be because there are indications of low genetic quality. Okay. So, you know. They are highly asymmetrical. And, um, those of you know your your um, uh, viewers who are watching this on YouTube, um, uh, if you look very closely, you can see that my face is actually quite asymmetrical. My mandible um, uh, is is much longer on one side than the other. Um, uh, but not disgusting. Uh, well, I, I would be even more handsome than I am in my own estimation if I were more symmetrical. Okay, so symmetry is attractive, mm -hmm. and you can you know you can Photoshop any face to make it um, more physically attractive by just taking half of it and mirroring it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, symmetry is attractive because it's hard to build a symmetrical organism. Mm -hmm. So it's a reflection of genetic quality. It's a reflection of the quality of the immune system. Exactly why my mandible is asymmetrical, it's not entirely clear, right? Whether it was an injury early in life or whether it was an infection or whether it's just, you know, a bad blueprint um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it is unknown, right? Um, <laughs> uh, um, 
But, uh, you know, uh, we find symmetry attractive. Lots of creatures find symmetry attractive, right? The peacock's tail is an advertisement that is revealing the peacock's genetic quality to the peahen, in part because that tail is so expensive to build and maintain. And part of its expense is its symmetry. It's just hard to make something symmetrical in a world full of, you know, insults and, 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 and injuries and, and, and so on. Um, uh, so... Um, uh, sexual disgust is um, is in part telling us that individual is a poor reproductive partner because they have cues of low genetic quality, like asymmetry, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's all right. My wife loves me for other reasons. Um, <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, uh, or, you know, signs of a weak immune system, okay? Mm -hmm. um, even something like just lethargy, right? Because mm -hmm. when, in, when people are, you know, sick or parasitized, they have less energy, okay, um, is, is going to reduce attraction. And, and strong cues of this being a poor partner will elicit disgust, okay? Um, uh, that's what, not what the only thing that... What do you mean by that... disgust there? Do you, do you mean um, if they're pr propositioned by one of these men, they will visibly be discussed by the, by the man? Or what, what do you mean? Uh, right. So, so here... What we haven't done so far is the kind of extension of the work that I described that Tom Kupfer and I and colleagues are doing where we're, we're using granular measures of subjective experience, like does your skin prickle or, mm -hmm. you know, does your, does your stomach feel upset, mm -hmm. right? Those are very, you know, sort of, you know, um, fine-grained um, accounts of subjective experience. We haven't done that for sexual disgust. I, and I don't think that anybody else has, as far as I know. So, so exactly what people mean when they say they're sexually disgusted is a little hard to tell, just because I don't think it's been investigated the mm -hmm. same way. Um, although I, I, I may be wrong. Um, I have a terrible memory, and 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 the disgust literature is is you know growing by the day. So there could be well established studies that do that kind of parsing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, if you just ask people. You know, are you disgusted by the prospect of this? Um, uh, you know, then um, they'll tell you as a function of uh, of you know cues of this being a very poor. So you can think about, for example, highly aged, disparate unions, right? A, mm -hmm. a very old woman and a young man, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's just a poor reproductive partner. Um, she's she's unlikely to conceive, right? Um, there is uh, there, but but. Quality isn't the only dimension. Um, compatibility is an important one. Um, and um, uh, uh, the all sexually reproducing organisms have the problem that um, that reproducing with a closely related individual will reduce fitness because um, uh, mutations occur spontaneously. Um, you know, um, you know, in a, in a relatively long lived organism like us, you know, you might accumulate a, a handful of mutations in the course of your own life. Um, uh, um, most of those will not be in the germline. That is, they won't be passed on through, um, uh, the gametes, but some of them uh, occasionally will. Now, um, a dominant mutation, that is a mutation that, um, that is always expressed in the phenotype, regardless of what, um, allele is donated by the other parent, um, 
most mutations are going to be detrimental. Mutations, of course, mm -hmm. are the raw material for natural selection, right? It's, it's, it's natural selection acting on variation, and mutation is the source of variation. But most mutations are going to be detrimental to fitness because, you know, organisms are complicated machines, and mutations are just random changes. And so, you know, if you take any complicated machine and you, know, you take your laptop and you throw it up in the air and let it hit the concrete, well, the chances are it's not going to work better. It's going to work worse because it's a complicated machine and you just introduced a random change. I suppose the analogy is better with taking out a transistor or something. Fine. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, or just, just tap it with a hammer. Maybe you just do some random change. Just, just a little bit of, you know, um, uh, it's it, most of the time it's going to work less well. Occasionally mutations will introduce some improvement, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and natural selection will, you know, because those individuals will be, have higher fitness, they will reproduce more. There'll be more copies of that mutation. Mm -hmm. Natural selection is just the mathematical process whereby that new version will come to dominate the population, right? Um, but most of them will be detrimental. Well, if they're detrimental and they're dominant, meaning that they're expressed regardless of what, um, uh, what version of a gene is contributed by the other parent, natural selection will weed out those deleterious mutations rapidly, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, so take an extreme example, which is progeria. So this is a, a tragic disease, um, uh, in which individuals age and die very rapidly. So they rarely make it out of their teen years. Um, you know, um, a, a 16 or 17 year old with progeria looks like somebody who's in their eighties or nineties. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they, they just, um, uh, they, they die before reproducing, um, uh, and that is a novel mutation. You never inherit the gene for progeria because it never gets passed on through reproduction. Okay, mm -hmm. um, that's just an extreme example. But anything that reduces fitness and is a dominant um, uh, gene, meaning it will be expressed in the phenotype of any individual who carries that, that can get weeded out by natural selection fairly quickly. Okay, mm -hmm. and the frequency in the population will be reduced or even eliminated. Okay. But mutations which are recessive, that is, which only show up when you in, in the phenotype, but they only influence the phenotype when you get two copies, one mm -hmm. from each parent, those are like little time bombs because you can all of us carry deleterious recessive mutations, right? Mm -hmm. We have inherited them from our forebears, and they don't affect our phenotype, but they're in there in our gametes. Mm -hmm. And if we mate with an individual who carries the same deleterious recessive mutations, now our offspring will be homozygous, that is, they'll have two copies mm -hmm. of that deleterious recessive mutation, in which case it will be phenotypically expressed, in which case fitness will be reduced, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is gonna be true for any sexually reproducing organism, and it's why inbreeding depression happens, that is why mating between individuals who are closely related will result in less fit offspring. So natural selection has produced a wide variety of mechanisms to reduce inbreeding. Um, some of those are, so in, in many social mammals, for example, um, uh, one sex or the other, depending on the species, leaves at sexual maturity. It leaves its group, it, it immigrates to a new group, okay, mm -hmm. as a way of avoiding you know, functionally, what's going on in the animal's minds, we don't know, right? But functionally, it, it avoids inbreeding, okay? Um, there are also sophisticated mechanisms that seem to allow individuals to recognize who their offspring are 
in, um, for example, um, white-faced capuchin monkeys in Costa Rica, mm -hmm. studied by my UCLA colleague, Susan Perry, um, where um, uh, a dominant male uh, who monopolizes reproduction in the troop, um, uh, his tenure as alpha male will be more than one um, reproductive generation long. Mm -hmm. That is, his daughters will become reproductive while he's still mm -hmm. in charge, and yet he preferentially avoids mating with them. Mm -hmm. So he knows who his daughters are. Is that Probably, a disgust mechanism or no? Well, we don't know because you can't ask the capuchin, okay? <laughs> He doesn't do this with his nose, you know. <laughs> it's hard to know what exactly the emotional lives of animals are. It's not impossible, but it's difficult, okay? Mm. Um, uh, but presumably what is going on is he knows what females he's mated with, and he knows what offspring those females have born. And so through that, you know, the mechanism is identifying his kin. In humans... Um, and this is work, I've done a little bit of work in this area. The person who's done most of the work is um, uh, my friend and colleague, Deb Lieberman. Um, uh, in humans, there are um, sophisticated mechanisms that allow us to identify kin on the basis of early experience. Um, and um, we experience disgust reactions to the prospect of sex with those individuals. Okay, it's not because they're genetically unfit; it's just because they're a poor match because mm -hmm. they will carry many of the same deleterious recessive mutations that we carry. And that actually was, if you want to, you know, where do you point the finger at the start of evolutionary psychology? Arguably, the observation that people are averse to sex with those with whom they have grown up independent of their actual biological relatedness and that there's an evolved mechanism driving that system that was that observation dates to the late 19th century edvard vestermark who was a sociologist only because anthropology as a discipline didn't exist um he observed this in um uh in a, a culture in which there is um a preferential first cousin marriage mm -hmm. um and and uh, if those cousins grow up together in the same home because uh, they're living on the same farm, then they avoid one another as mm -hmm. sexual partners, despite the fact that their their elders would like them to marry in order mm -hmm. to keep the land from being broken up um, into different you know uh, farms over time. Um, and and subsequently, similar evidence has been collected among. Um, uh, Israeli kibbutzim, so you know these utopian communities established mm -hmm. in Israel, and in which, um, uh, in some of them, f to establish gender equality, um, uh, rather than having um, women be solely responsible for infant care, children were raised in communal nurseries, mm -hmm. so unrelated kids being raised together, and then subsequently averse to sex with one another as adults. It's similarly been demonstrated by um, uh, Arthur Wolf uh, in uh, studies of uh, uh, a practice in um, that's not prominent in contemporary Taiwan, but was um, uh, uh, within recent memory um, called Simpua marriage, in which to avoid um, high bride price costs, a family with a little boy would adopt a little girl, pay a token bride price, and then raise them as a bride for their son. And those two individuals are, you know, averse to sex with one another. They have, um, you know, high divorce rates, low fertility rates, and so on, right? Um, uh, th those are kin recognition mechanisms, which, you know, serve functions of 
identifying individuals with whom we have a nepotistic shared interest, but also serve the function of identifying individuals for sexual avoidance. And disgust seems to play a really important role in that. Mm. Um, what I find really the, interesting, can I just mention, is um, sure. I, I find it really interesting that those same individuals would be more comfortable, for example, sharing food, I imagine, than with strangers. It, but so th th there seems to be a disconnect between these two different types of disgust here. So there's an Absolutely. Example. You love your sibling. You want to help your sibling. In fact, you, you want to help your sibling even if you don't love your sibling. So even people who say, you know, yeah, I'm not, yeah, not so fond of that person, but I'm closely related to them, they're more likely to help that person than they are to help an unrelated individual about whom they see, feel similarly, right? That is because, you know, um, uh, our relatives are just another, uh, that is our biological relatives, um, uh, not our in-laws, are another vehicle whereby our genes get out there in the next generation, okay? Mm -hmm. So inclusive fitness isn't just the individual's own reproductive output, but the reproductive output of their kin because mm -hmm. their kin share genes with them, okay? So nepotism is universal in the animal world where when, when animals are social, right? If they hang around with other members of their species, they will favor, it's true of trees, it's true of all kinds of living things, right? Um, uh, they will favor individuals to whom they're closely related over individuals to whom they are not because they have a vested interest in their welfare, okay? Mm -hmm. And th something like sharing food or the sociality problem that I described earlier that, you know, it's so good to see grandma after lockdown and, you know, you, you kill grandma by infecting her with COVID, right? Um, well, you know, you value that relationship because kin help each other, right? Because they have a vested interest in one another's welfare. Mm -hmm. So they should want to hang out. They should want to help each other. They should want to share food. They should not want to have sex with each other, right? Um, and, and the mechanisms are very precise about this, right? They're, they're, that, that, you know, um, you know, people will be overjoyed to be reunited with their close kin they don't want to see them naked having sex you know no uh, -uh right um uh, and um uh and that actually leads me to the other aspect of disgust which arguably is the the the, the facet of this which is really probably unique to human beings and that's moral disgust mm -hmm. so both deb lieberman and i and um uh, carlos navarrete have done work showing that um, that uh, that people experience an aversive reaction to others' incestuous behavior, right? Um, even when it doesn't involve them, as a function of their own childhood with rearing with siblings. Okay, so only children are less disgusted by consensual sibling incest than people who grew up with siblings, right? And we think that what is going on here is that knowing about somebody else's incestuous behavior evokes the possibility of one engaging in such behavior oneself. And that turns on the disgust mechanism that turns off sexual desire. Okay, So just like there's an antithesis between hunger and, um, uh, and disgust, there's an antithesis between sexual desire and disgust. And mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Diana Fleischman, the colleague that I mentioned earlier, and, 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 and some other colleagues and I have, have done work measuring physiological measures of sexual arousal to, to demonstrate this antithesis, right? Um, uh, um, so uh, 
uh, things like incest taboos, and I should say incest and inbreeding are not the same. Incest mm -hmm. is a cultural phenomenon because cultures define who are appropriate mating partners and who are not. Mm -hmm. And it's not isomorphic with biological relatedness, as is, is evident in cases like preferential first cousin marriage that I described before, which biologically is a bad idea, but it's actually a quite common cultural preference because it maintains uh, material wealth in a lineage. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, uh, but taboos, you can think about taboos like that as um, a manifestation of uh, what we call egocentric empathy, which is, so true empathy is when you feel what someone else is feeling, right? Mm -hmm. um, egocentric empathy is what you feel um, if you were doing what they're doing. So, so babies um, are not disgust sensitive. Um, uh, probably for adaptive reasons. Okay? Really? okay, babies will will you know will put anything in their mouths, including feces and you know mm -hmm. other things that adults never would. Okay, um, you'd think adult... it'd be the other way around, right? Because they don't know anything about what they're putting in their mouth, so surely they should avoid. Yeah, I'll, and... I'll give you a hypothesis for that in just a minute. Um, uh, so, so uh, 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 Elizabeth Abrams and I have published work on you know a, a, a conjecture as to why that is, but. <laughs> Hold on for a minute. Think about how you see how how you feel if you see a baby eating poop. Okay, the baby's not disgusted. The baby might be perfectly happy, right? They're having a grand old time eating poop. Okay, or playing in it or whatever. Okay, mm -hmm. but you're grossed out by this. Okay, yeah. that's egocentric empathy. It's not true empathy. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so incest taboos may be a consequence of egocentric empathy that is even if you so in these the way that we did these experiments we gave people a vignette in which there's fully consensual sibling um, incest among adults, right? Um, uh, and if people grew up with a sibling, then they report more disgust and, they, and importantly, they're more punitive towards these characters in the vignette, mm -hmm. okay? They think, you know, society needs to do bad things to them because what they're doing is wrong, okay? So in, in China where they've got the one child policy, is there some, is this visible along this domain or? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the connection. Sorry. So, so in China, you have the well, you had the one child policy. So you have a whole country full of uh, single ch children. And so, oh, I see what you're asking. So you're saying are people is it are people less disgusted by vignettes about um, uh, um, uh, consensual sibling incest than somewhere else at a societal I, level? Yeah, yeah. I, the the trouble with that is. There's so many other things that vary across cultures, right? I mean, you're not just varying how many mm -hmm. families have one child. You're varying a whole bunch of other things simultaneously. Sure. So, so I mean, it might be an interesting result, but I wouldn't say that it would be, you know, necessarily illuminating because there's so many other things that, that you know, I mean, there, uh, you know, parenting changed dramatically mm -hmm. in, in China with uh, the single child policy. And, sure. and there's a lot of concern in contemporary China about, you know, indulging parenting child, of single yeah. children and what's going to happen what what are the personalities of these individuals and so on right but okay back to uh, taboos um so uh it the the incest taboo from uh, enforcing the incest taboo from the perspective of the individual is not actually functional right I, like who cares what those people do right i mean it's, it doesn't affect your fitness if they're doing that right Except you um, live in a uh, so, group, right? This is a disease transmission vector, no? Yeah, sex is a disease transmission vector. So that's what I'm saying. So like there's no benefit to uh, this pair having sex, but this is a possible uh, way that disease could spread within your in-group. 
okay, so this is an important feature of, uh, an important point about how natural selection operates. Natural selection is competition within a population, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, cultural evolution can act to promote the good of the group, mm -hmm. right? And, and so we get the... The, the cultural evolution of norms of self-sacrifice for the good of the group, for example, mm -hmm. throw yourself on the grenade, okay, right, which is great for the group, bad for you, okay, right. Natural selection by itself does not produce, with with the exception of some very special circumstances, it doesn't produce um, mechanisms that shape behavior in a way that benefit the group at the expense of the individual, okay? Mm -hmm. Because from the perspective of, you know, which genes become more prominent in the population, everybody else is a competitor. If they don't share your genes, they're, you know, they're just competing for representation in the next generation, okay? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, all else being equal, individuals ought not to care about from the, you know, sort of strict natural selection perspective about the behavior of, you know, in, in consensual sibling incest, okay? Um, but they do care deeply. And probably what's going on there is that that is a byproduct of the inbreeding avoidance mechanism. It's functional for them to, to care a lot about who their own partners are. It's not functional strictly from the perspective of that kind of simple natural selection. So, but what's going on is, of course, humans are moral creatures, okay? Mm -hmm. That is, we have elaborate rules governing behavior in a wide variety of domains, including, but by no means limited to the sexual domain, right? And those rules are largely, but not exclusively, culturally evolved. There's some biological evolution in terms of the rules about, you know, fair exchange, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, in, in individual um, dyadic reciprocity and so on. But uh, what seems to have happened is that, um, that there's been a co-evolution of our species dependence on culture as a way, not just of having technology that allows us to cope with the environment, but that structures our social interactions, like sharing food, food among hunter-gatherers, as I described before. That's a cultural rule, okay, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, is universal across hunter-gatherer groups because you can't make a living without that rule, basically. So, so um, you know, groups that don't have that elaborate conceptual architecture don't make it, right? Okay. Well, if you're a cultural organism, that is, if you're a, a species that is going to be born into a world in which cultural information, information from members of your group is really important to knowing how to succeed. You know, what animals are dangerous? What foods can you eat? How do you make tools? What constitutes various forms of cooperation, etc. right? All of these things, this is all cultural information. So there have to be a whole bunch of blades in the Swiss army knife that are dedicated to the acquisition, retention, transmission, use of cultural information, right? Um, and, you know, we have this in spades as humans, right? Mm -hmm. So um, one easy example is um, what's called prestige bias transmission, right? So we tend to imitate whole hog successful individuals, which is why, you know, sports stars and, and celebrities can sell you products that have nothing to do with their actual success, right? You know, they can sell you life insurance and watches. And that's not why that guy is good at hitting that little white ball in a little hole in the grass, right? Has the kind of underwear that he wears has nothing to do with how high he can jump up to the basketball hoop, right? But, um, but they can sell us those products because 
we, in the world of our ancestors, it was hard to tell what led to someone's success. So we just adopted whole hog many of their practices. That's a special blade in our Swiss Army knife, okay? Well, if you're going to have, you know, complex social interaction, that interaction is most effective when it is governed by a bunch of rules, right? At the simple level, the rules are just coordination, right? Which side of the road do you drive on, right? See, mm -hmm. you know, in the pre-pandemic days, you know, if you went to a badly designed international airport, there were always pedestrian traffic jams because there was no consensus as to which side of the hallway you're supposed to walk on, right? People who came from countries where people drive on the right walked on the right, and people who came from countries where they drive on the left walked on the left. And if they're going opposite directions, that means they run into each other, right? Okay. They're just coordination rules, okay? But that's just a simple example. Obviously, they're in, in terms of the problem of cooperation and cheating, right? The, the, the problem of how to regulate antisocial self-interested behavior in general, right? That's where we say that's the domain of morality, which is just a, mm -hmm. we're carving off a special part of cultural rules and calling it that thing, right? Well, there should be a bunch of blades in our Swiss army knife that are dedicated, not just to acquiring all kinds of cultural information, but to acquiring moral rules in particular, because one of the things that we as humans do is we don't just punish those who inflict costs on us. We punish those who violate rules even when it doesn't affect us. And we have what's called higher order punishment, which is we punish people who fail to punish people who do bad things. Mm -hmm. And once you have higher order punishment, the costs of punishment go way down, okay? Because you don't have to punish people very often because um, most people will engage. If someone does do something wrong, most people will shun them. Most people will... Because you don't want to be the guy who, you know, yeah, this pedophile moved in next door to me after he was released from prison. I don't care. You don't want to be that neighbor, right? Um, because people are going to say, oh, you think pedophilia is okay? Do you? Okay. Well, mm -hmm. now we're going to shun you too. Okay. So um, uh, so we have these systems of punishment, which means that we should have a, a, an elaborate psychological architecture for the acquisition of moral rules where we experience the violation of moral rules as if it were transgressions against ourselves. We are outraged, even though it doesn't involve us at all, okay? Mm -hmm. And we're willing to pay costs to punish individuals who break those rules, okay? Um, disgust, there are many kinds of, 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 of emotional reactions to moral violations that don't involve disgust, okay? Mm -hmm. They mostly involve anger, which is, you know, the simple response to transgression. Someone punches you, you're mad. Okay. Someone cheats you, you're mad. We treat violations of rules as if, of moral rules, as if they were transgressions against the self. But some of the domains of morality contact disgust. Mm -hmm. So rules about food, rules about sex. Okay. And then moral disgust is basically just leveraging that existing architecture that is there for these other purposes as part of the psychology of a culture-dependent species, right? That is, as part of the way of motivating punishment of rule violators. And, and um, disgust is actually a pretty cheap pathway for punishment because um, it just motivates avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's dangerous to go up to a rule violator and get in their face. They might hit you, right? But just say, I don't want to be near that person. I don't want to be associated with them, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's cheaper for you as a punisher, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, disgust is available um, as a pathway that 
cultural evolution can leverage emotions to motivate punishment. And probably the entry points are things like the sexual domain and the food domain. So we get you mm -hmm. know food taboos, we get sexual taboos and mm -hmm. so on, right? But it's not limited to those. You can be disgusted by, um, you know, embezzlement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see. Um, so, now, how so much, could, could how much just, of that um, is... Could I, just so I make sure I understand. So, for example, so you're saying... There is a there's a link between uh, disgust and morality, but it's not one to one. So, for example, I'm not going to be disgusted that someone robbed a bank, but then there are uh, various domains within morality which are sort of governed by this disgust uh, emotion. So, I would say that the the evolved psychology of disgusts plural, right? These multiple mm -hmm. things that we're all using the same English word for, right? presents affordances, opportunities for cultural evolution, where it's easier to motivate punishment in those domains by using disgust. But, you know, we're a culture-dependent species. So, you know, the, the, the capacity is there to attach strong emotions to a wide variety of things. So you might say, well, I wasn't disgusted by the bank robbery until I learned mm. that you know, the people whose savings were taken were all, you know, elderly or people from a disadvantaged background or they were physically handicapped in some fashion, right? That is, they were extremely vulnerable. And now I start to be not just angry, but disgusted as well, mm -hmm. okay? Um, that which, by the way, that, I mean, different cultures have different moral systems. The the, the cultures of the, the, the sort of, you know, the North Atlantic, as it were, um, uh, prioritize harm as one of the principal moral violations as opposed to purity okay mm -hmm. so harm like you know the, the these innocents have been if you know as huge banking organization they got tons of assets i don't they're kind of a you know a, an exploitative institution anyway i don't care if they got robbed but now if i know that these you know these innocents were harmed okay now i care if i'm from a culture that that places a high priority on protecting others from harm but there are cultures that place a high priority on purity, okay? Um, uh, the cultures of South Asia, for example, is one, um, uh, you know, whole culture region that places a high priority on purity. Um, and, uh, and now it may have to, more to do with contamination, okay? Mm -hmm. um, with prohibited social interactions, um, exchanges, and so mm -hmm. on, right? Um, failure to perform adequate ritual purification, etc., rather than harm. Could, could I ask a question just quickly? Uh, one, one part of the story that you're telling at the moment that I don't really, which I'm not grasping, is so what precedes what? Is it the is it morality that precedes disgust, or is it disgust that precedes morality, or is it a combination of the two that depends on the type of disgust that you're talking about? And uh, that that's that's something I'm not following exactly so it depends what you mean by proceed if, if you mean in individual development and i'm I, we're going to get back to babies and poop in a minute um please if you mean if you mean <laughs> who doesn't like talking about poop if if you mean um uh, individual development then um uh it's probably the case that some of the kind of primordial components of disgust like distaste mm -hmm. right so Babies and small children don't like bitter tastes because bitter tastes 
um, index the presence of plant toxins, and they can't handle the plant toxins, so they don't they don't want to eat the, the bitter vegetables and so on, right? Um, those things are there fairly early on, and then as children, you know, start to acquire an understanding of their culture's moral systems, they are also starting to acquire other, they're, they're starting, not acquire, but they're starting to mature other forms of disgust. So those things are kind of happening, they're co-occurring. Um, if you mean, you know, um, over evolutionary time, um, I mean, there were, you know, it, there were pre-cultural primates, right? So, so lots of social primates seem to have something like a kind of rudimentary aspect of culture. There are traditions that are passed down in communities, things like nut cracking in chimpanzees mm -hmm. and so on, right? Where they're, you know, in the same ecosystem, one group of chimpanzees will do it and another group won't do it or won't do it anywhere near as frequently or won't do it the same way and things like that. So that's, that's a kind of culture, but it's not, it's a pretty rudimentary culture, right? Mm -hmm. Um, well, the problems of disease avoidance, you know, they're, they're as old as life itself, because as soon as they're living things, they're pathogens that evolve to exploit them, right? Um, uh, um, um, so, you know, if we had to push into way deep time, I would say some of these really um, simple forms of disgust must predate other things. But then, you know, it's not like there were species without culture, and then there were species with culture, right? That's not the way evolution works, right? There's this, this gradual process in which, as socially transmitted information becomes more important, selection, biological evolution selection, will increasingly favor psychological architecture that allows individuals to acquire and, and exploit that information and to succeed in a group that is governed by that information. So there is a co-evolution between an increasingly rich cultural repertoire of information in a species and an increasingly elaborate set of mechanisms for the acquisition and use of that cultural information. And so now if you ask me what comes first, you know, in disgust and morality, well, you know, now it's all tangled up, right? Um, uh, I mean, we have to push back into a kind of pre-cultural time where we can see things like, you know, avoiding suboptimal mating partners and avoiding the presence of disease. Um, those are problems that don't have to have a cultural component to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, they just have to have some rudimentary sociality to them. Um, but but once we start the ball rolling, then these co-evolutionary interactions between cultural evolution and biological evolution will happen, and you can't tease them apart. Mm -hmm. Are we ready for babies and poop now? Please. Okay. So why do babies eat poop? And not just poop, but um, the the um, the key feature about infant mouthing behavior, um, and this is this is a hypothesis that Elizabeth Abrams and I published. Um, uh, I would not say. I mean, it is consistent with known observations. I would not say it has ever been put to a rigorous empirical test but it's the best explanation that I know of. The important thing about infant mouthing is not just that infants are indiscriminate about what they mouth, um, but it's that they're avid about it. So anybody who's been around, a, a, you know, a, a, you know, an infant that can crawl, for example, um, you got to really watch them because if there's anything that will fit in their mouth, 
they'll zoom across the room and grab it and stick it in their mouths, right? I mean, this is why, you know, you can't have marbles and pennies and things like that around because your kid will die because they'll choke on it because they'll just put it in their mouth, okay? So that it isn't just that they're sort of blind to possibilities. And so they, you know, they just do random stuff. They really want to put stuff in their mouths, okay? Um, and um, that makes it look like this behavior must be functional, right? Mm -hmm. Because time and energy are being used to do something that puts babies at risk, okay? Um, now, if you crack open a developmental psychology book, you'll find these almost laughable explanations like, well, this is how infants explore the world, okay? Which is an idea that, you know, kind of has its origins in Freud and this fixation on the breast. And, and from the very beginning, that's like a non-starter as an explanation because, um, you know, infants very soon after birth can detect the nipple, okay? They don't just mouth indiscriminately on the mother's body. Um, they, they learn to home in very quickly on this thing, okay? That, that is, you know, important for their sustenance, right? So they're discriminating from the beginning. And the idea that this is how they explore the environment, look, their eyes work, their hands work, their ears work, you know, adults don't, you know, run around sticking stuff in their mouths all the time, right? Um, uh, so if there are serious costs associated with this, and of course there are, in addition to choking, there's a serious risk of poisoning. And that's not just the, 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 the presence of, you know, bleach in your laundry room. It's, you know, toxic plants in the environment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, of course, there's disease risk, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, look, you know, why would natural selection create a system where you information gather in a way that is very likely to kill you without adult <laughs> intervention, right? It's just, this is, 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 there's no evidence to support this and it's completely implausible, okay? So what is the explanation? Well, um, uh, Betsy Abrams and I argue that the key lies in understanding the timing of avid mouthing. And that um, uh, if we look at studies that have been conducted, for example, in, um, you know, uh, um, trying to gauge the safety of various consumer products and things like that, you, you want to know what, you know, what, what demographics are at risk? Okay, who's likely to put stuff in their mouth? So you, you know, you basically watch a lot of babies and see when they're avid mouthers. And the answer is they're avid mouthers during the time period when in, um, pre-industrial populations, particularly hunter-gatherer populations, infants would have been breastfed, okay? Um, uh, because their digestive tract is not yet sufficiently mature, um, their, you know, masticatory abilities and so on are, are too limited to allow for, for um, much other than breast milk, and breast milk, you know, really important in human development. Among all the other things that breast milk has in it, um, uh, breast milk has maternal antibodies mm -hmm. um, that are transmitted from mother to infant. And although it's not entirely clear the extent to which this is true, there is at least the possibility that those maternal antibodies are functional. That is, mm -hmm. that they are providing um, a temporary umbrella to the infant um, that gives some of the benefits of the mother's immune system's lifelong experience to date, right? Because mm -hmm. she's transmitting some of these antibodies to her baby. Um, so the costs of mouthing in terms of 
disease transmission are going to be reduced in a in a nursing infant conceivably right mm -hmm. I, I lots of asterisks and caveats here because um this is conjecture um mm -hmm. uh well what benefits might occur by mouthing stuff um one important benefit is gauging the pathogen ecology into which one has been born so humans live in very very different environments and they they always have as i said um and both the the density of different pathogen species and the composition of that pathogen ecology is going to differ across those larger physical ecologies and that's going to matter because it's going to affect how much you should be investing in your immune function as opposed to other things that you might invest in like growth for example okay mm -hmm. um in a, in, a, in a high pathogen environment you it's more important to invest in 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 your immune system proportionately compared to a low pathogen environment. What's more, exposure to pathogens seems to be really important in calibrating our immune systems. Um, we have co-evolved with pathogens and, um, and parasites as well. Um, uh, and um, there's some evidence um, that you get dysregulation of the immune system if you have inadequate exposure to pathogens early in life. Okay. In both directions? Uh, you, you get a, an overactive immune system that fails to adequately discriminate mm -hmm. um, uh, because it's, it's just badly calibrated, okay? Mm -hmm. um, uh, this was originally called the hygiene hypothesis in the 1980s. It's subsequently been modified to be described as the old friends um, hypothesis that is that, that there are other living things, uh, microbes and um, and and parasites, um, things like helminths, um, gastrointestinal worms, which we have co-evolved with. Um, uh, and um, it's not that that parasitic worms are our friends, um, but it is that um, we have been unable to get rid of them. Um, uh, so in the the you know this village that my wife and I worked in, um, I would treat kids for worms all the time. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, if a kid got malaria, you know, body temperature went up, worms had come out their nose because the worms are making a run for it. They don't like the high temperatures. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and wow. so, you know, we would deworm kids, but they just get the worms again, okay, because they're ubiquitous in the environment, okay? Um, you know, if you don't have, you know, a really built environment like is true of the, of the global, mm -hmm. much of the global north, it's very hard to avoid them, Okay. Um, and so certainly the evidence with regard to helminths is pretty good that um, that our immune system is actually it has co-evolved with these creatures that are just sort of endemic to our species, essentially. And in fact, um, helminths uh, have been used experimentally, therapeutically to treat some conditions that are a consequence of immune dysregulation. Um, and I'm, I'm intentionally being vague here because I don't want anybody listening or watching this to go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to go eat some dirt because, you know, I got this. You I know, mean, severe, pregnant women or, do this, right? To, uh, occasionally. Uh, so that, you know, geophagy does occur, which is that the eating of dirt. Um, um, how much this is adaptive in itself or how much this is a misfiring of a system is hard to say. So pregnant women eat a lot of things that are not edible. Um, uh, the medical term for this is pica. 
And um, I mean, it's not that they should, it's that they do so often, they experience shame, they may not tell their doctors about it. They eat all kinds of strange things, chalk, um, mm -hmm. uh, laundry detergent, things that are really bad for you, um, cigarette butts. Um, uh, uh, one possible explanation for all of this is that the geophagy is adaptive and the pica is a misfiring of the geophagy system. Mm -hmm. And what's adaptive in the geophagy is not ingesting pathogens and parasites in the soil because people are actually selective about the kind of soil that they eat. It's that they're ingesting high calcium content soil, mm -hmm. clays that have a lot of calcium because Clay has a very high surface area, uh, calcium, excuse me, has a very high surface area proportionate to its volume. And as a consequence, it binds with a lot of things. Um, and so it can bind to toxins produced by bacteria, for example. Um, Kaopectate, the medication that's used to treat, um, you know, nausea and diarrhea, it's basically liquid clay is all hmm. it is. Um, and in fact, um, you know, uh, viewers who take calcium supplements or use antacids to ma manage heartburn or something like that, they need to be careful because you don't want to take that in conjunction with any medication or if you're taking other supplements because it will neutralize the effects of that. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're taking like a thyroid replacement hormone for, for um, you know, a hypothyroidism, a very mm -hmm. common disease in, in the global north, um, uh you don't want to take your thyroid replacement hormone. You certainly don't want to take it. You shouldn't take it with any food because food will just, you know, other mm -hmm. stuff in your stomach will diminish absorption. But you really don't want to take it with calcium. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, you know, a woman who's trying to protect against osteoporosis and is, uh, hypothyroidism is more common in women than it is in men, as all autoimmune diseases are. Um, uh, um, uh, nearly all. Um, uh, you know, she might be taking calcium supplements. Good thing to do. She might be taking, you know, a thyroid replacement hormone. Good thing to do. Don't take them together. Very bad thing to do. Okay. Hmm. Um, uh, or elderly patients who are taking calcium supplements to avoid, you know, um, uh, senescent, hmm. um, osteoporosis, um, uh, and taking, you know, like blood pressure medication or something like that. Don't take them together. Okay. So geophagy might be in pregnancy might be adaptive. And in cultures where geophagy is normative, it's often used to treat, you know, gastrointestinal distress, basically. And it's not that people are just picking up a handful of dirt and gobbling it down. It's that they are selective about what they're eating and they're, they're preferentially targeting high calcium content soils. Um, potentially adaptively, and 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 it turns out that some primates do the same thing when they have uh, you know some GI infection, um, uh, and and pica, the cigarette butts and detergent and things like that, um, that might just be a misfiring of a system mm -hmm. that's actually there to target. It looks like calcium, the, the, or it looks yeah, like... right. It has some some you know sensory uh, facets, right? So it's it's texture, or it's color, or something like that that it, it mm -hmm. resembles this. So it just gets triggered accidentally, right? Mm -hmm. But um, that's not what babies are doing, okay? Babies are not, they're, they're, they're indiscriminate, okay? And they're avid. So they're not, they're not engaging in geophagy, that's for sure, okay? Um, but what they might be doing is training up their immune systems while they have the protection of mother's milk, okay? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and as I said, there's evidence that individuals who grow up in two clean environments, um, so if you grow up in the city, you're more likely to have allergies, atopic dermatitis, things like this, mm -hmm. asthma, than if you grow up in the country, because the country is dirtier than the city. If you grow up with dogs, um, you're less likely to have those problems 
because mm-hmm. dogs are dirty, okay, versus, <laughs> say, cats, okay? Um, if you grew up with, uh, you know, many siblings close in age, um, you're less likely to have those problems because those siblings bring dirt and, you know, pathogens into your household, right? Delightful. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, the, 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 the term in this community where we worked um, for, um, for toddlers, uh, one way of describing a, a toddler um, is to call them little snotties because toddlers just kind of have perpetual rhinovirus infections, right? They're just, they're constantly acquiring these, you know, this is true. Any, any, you know, parent of a preschooler will tell you this is the little kids are just vectors for disease. They're just bringing the bugs home, right? So if you're getting exposed to these during development, um, uh, then I wouldn't say that the evidence is definitive, but there is, you know, some evidence suggesting that your immune system develops more successfully it's it, it is more mm-hmm. properly regulated and potentially your investment in your immune system is more appropriate to your local ecosystem so you know look little babies are um at risk of you know disease by putting stuff in their mouths mother's milk helps with that they're also at risk of you know plant toxins and choking um but realistically if you have an unintended little baby in the world of our ancestors that baby's not, you know, because little babies are just lion lunchables, right? I mean, they're yeah. just you know, they're little meat packets waiting to be taken by a predator. So, you know, adults have to be attentive or older siblings, this is often the case, have to be attentive to the actions of, you know, small, um, uh, you know, crawling humans. Um, uh, and so they can, you know, keep an eye on, no, no, you know, don't put the poisonous plant in your mouth, right? And, and by mouthing a whole bunch of other stuff that, yeah, let them mouth that, whatever, fine, you know, who cares, right? Um, uh, um, uh, the, you know, if the kid isn't obviously going to be poisoned or choke on the thing, then, um, you know, potentially there's benefit in doing so, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my when my grandson was, was little, um, uh, like the way that he would greet our dogs is just to like walk up to this thing that's like the size of a horse and just put his mouth on it, right? Just, ah, (laughs) you know, I mean, just kind of not walk. Walk would be, he would lift himself up and go, ah. By the time they walk, they're they're largely not mouthing very much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You still have to be careful about things like, you know, dangerous chemicals that look like they might be candy and things Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, I don't know what the hell the, you know, the, the laundry and dishwasher people were thinking when they made these, these pods. pods that yeah. uh, I they mean, do it's look just a, delicious. Yeah, I mean, it looks <laughs> they're bright colors. They're they're shiny, right? I mean, it's you know, it's poorly thought out product safety. But um, uh, but you know, so like a toddler will you know stick stuff like that in their mouths, right? You know, a, a five year old you got to watch because they'll poison themselves with things like that. But they're not racing around you know aggressively mm-hmm. picking up everything and putting it in their mouths the way the little crawlers are. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, um is that explanation right? Don't know. I would be thrilled if if one of your listeners, uh, you know, either is a current scientist or a, a future scientist, go and test it. Um, you know, prove me wrong. That's fine. That's how science works. Go do it. Can I ask, um, the, if, if we go back a little bit, uh, so one thing that you mentioned was that uh, men and women have different disgust sensitivity in general. On average, uh, the distributions on, overlap, but, you know, mm-hmm. the same is true for any sex-specific characteristic that the mm-hmm. distributions overlap, you know. Um, uh, well, 
Well, so I wanted to... Okay, so I did want to ask uh, how, how much they differ, but one specific thing that I'm interested in is, you know, as... So there's this uh, risk hypothesis that risk relates to uh, disgust that we've been talking about. One thing I'm wondering about is, so as women age, uh, they go through menopause. So I'm wondering if towards, uh, as they close in on menopause, does their disgust sensitivity, sexual disgust sensitivity go down? Because, you know, if you're breeding with people who you might get diseases from or um, early on in your your birthing career, then you might jeopardize later chances as well to sire healthy children. Whereas towards the end of your, uh, you know, fertile years, you're not risking you know, the risk of uh, is, is not sort of propagated uh, down the line. So is, is there something like this sort of a mechanism that's going on? So um, I don't know the answer. We conceivably have the data in existing data sets that we could address it, but I don't know the answer offhand. I'm not sure if anybody does. Um, uh, um, there's some things that uh, so um, discuss towards dead things and the possibility of death declines with age, um, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't entirely match the the risk-taking explanation. The risk-taking explanation is by no means, you know, it's explaining a portion of the variance, but not a huge portion of the variance. So it's, it's not the mm-hmm. whole picture at all. Um, uh, the thing about sexual disgust and the reason that, um, you know, your you know, logical conjecture is maybe not as apt as it might seem is that... Um, uh, sexual disgust, the way it seems to work is that um, we don't experience it absent the possibility of sex. So, um, you know, you might be, well, not you might be, I'm confident that you as a reasonable and mentally healthy individual Absent the, you know, the problems of SARS-CoV-2 transmission, you're perfectly happy riding in an elevator with elderly women, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you might not be so happy about those elderly women, you know, being naked and masturbating or something like that, okay? That would be less pleasant. Um, um, yeah, that you don't experience aversion to, um, uh, to those individuals absent the immediate cues that bring the possibility of sex online. And that is really adaptive, okay? Mm. And it's not just because you want to be able to interact with, you know, wise elderly members of your community. Think back to what I said about nepotism, right? I mean, the people you want to help the most are the ones you're most closely related to from, this is not a moral prescription, by the way. I should have said this at the very beginning. You know, if viewers have gotten to whatever hour we are in this particular, you know, dialogue here, um, uh, you know, I should have said this at the very beginning, which is do not commit the, <laughs> don't commit the naturalistic fallacy, right? The naturalistic fallacy is the mistaken idea that, you know, uh, uh, biological explanation, <laughs> right? Th- th- this provides some kind of a moral prescription, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, we decide as thinking beings what we think is right and wrong in the world. Scientific explanations for why people do things are irrelevant to whether something is right or wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because humans do all kinds of things that we would universally find morally reprehensible, like, you know, rape and murder, um, mm-hmm. war. And then um, we do other things uh, that are nice, like adoption, which don't really make genetic sense, right, I suppose. Right. So, so, you know, we make our own decisions as moral agents independent of 
explanations for why people do things. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, uh, that's really important. Um, uh, now, backing up, um, you know, so when I say, you know, the person you should be nice to is your sibling, that's from the perspective of natural selection. That's not a moral prescription. As a moral prescription, I think you should be nice to everyone, right? I, I, you know, I, um, with the exception of punishment of wrongdoers, right? Um, uh, and forgiveness should be part of that, right? So um, uh, that when I say should be, I'm saying from the perspective of how natural selection operates. So, so um, nepotism being natural doesn't mean it's right. Um, but, but, um, we can understand exactly why nepotism, the biological, in, in evolutionary biology, the term is kin selection, which is just, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, evolution that favors preferential treatment of kin. That's all it is. Um, uh, um, you can't have, you know, discussed motivating inbreeding avoidance or anything motivating inbreeding avoidance for that matter, if it's going to interfere with your nepotistic orientation towards kin. Okay. And that's exactly how sexual disgust works. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, in fact, it's the way that disgust works in general, which is that we are social creatures and we're very happy being around others as long as we don't see the sides of them that would elicit disgust in us. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's great to be around your kin. You just don't want to be around them when they're having sex. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, all the viewers have, you know, defecated within the last 24 hours, maybe 48 on the outside, right? If there's not, you know, add some fiber to your diet. Um, uh, um, Where's this going? It doesn't. <laughs> well, the point is, you'd be perfectly happy interacting with any of those people. You just don't oh, want to be right. around them when they're taking a dump, okay? Right? That is... You can you, you can you can interact constructively, productively, pro-socially with others, and still have them be potential disgust elicitors, as long as you're not exposed to the facet of themselves that is the disgust relevant. Mm-hmm. So, feature, so right? what about uh, homosexuality then? So, uh, morally, you know, if you go back even twenty years, ten years, people would say it's disgusting that uh, there's homosexuality, right? So. Um, where does that line up uh, with, um, say, pedophilia? And I'm not, I'm not relating these at all. I'm just from a, from the uh, question of discuss as a scientific topic. How do how do these uh, line up? Well, first of all, um, I, I need to put a, an asterisk on your statement that people would find okay if what you mean is the prevailing cultural view in the you know. The, the countries of the North Atlantic, then yes, that's true. But there's enormous variation across cultures in in, um, in terms of how same-sex sexual contact is viewed and even what, what people describe as sexual orientation, that is, what constitutes homosexuality. This is enormously variable. So, for example, um, you know, in, in many of the countries of Latin America, um, uh, Men having sex with men doesn't define a man as being gay. Mm-hmm. What defines him as being gay is the role that he plays in that sexual behavior. So the penetrator may be seen as masculine and heterosexual. The penetratee may be seen as gay. Okay, mm-hmm. these are cultural constructions that are being built around you know various facets of human behavior. Okay, um, and I should say there's you know a reasonable there's, there's good evidence that there is a heritable component to sexual orientation. 
And there's a reasonable argument to be made that um, most humans in any population on the planet have actually more flexible sexuality than cultural norms would lead you to believe. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that, that the default is not exclusive heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, my discussed collaborator whom I mentioned earlier, Diana Fleischman and I have a paper on this um, where we've got some experimental evidence to support this idea. Um, uh, lots and lots of social mammals engage in same-sex sexual contact for a variety of functional reasons, expressions of dominance, right? So if you've been around dogs, you've seen dog fights happen when one dog mounts another dog and that's mm-hmm. a claim of dominance and now they're going to fight it out to see who's really dominant, right? Um, lots of mammals use same-sex sexual contact as a form of bonding, mm-hmm. um, the building of you know close social relationships. If you have a dog who's a leg humper, you've witnessed this as well, okay? It's right? bonding. And, it's yes. I love it when people say, oh, he's just saying hello. It's a pretty interesting way of saying hello. Um, uh, um, so it would be bizarre if humans didn't have the same evolved, you know, uh, uh, proclivities and capacities to mm-hmm. use sexuality for a variety of social purposes. And, and, and those social purposes exceed reproduction and therefore are not limited to opposite sex sexual behavior right um so, uh, so, so do you do you suspect then that disgust towards homosexuality is a misfiring or it's uh culturally i think it's i think it's cultural evolution is mm-hmm. all that we're seeing there okay so um uh the sexuality and marriage which are not the same thing of course right um uh um but um uh, these are domains where cultural evolution is really, really active, right? So every known culture has a concept of marriage and has mm-hmm. rules about who can have sex with whom, okay? Those concepts may be quite variable from society to society, and those rules may be quite variable similarly, but that is a human universal, okay? And it's because um, establishing the guidelines within which these behaviors take place is crucial to the stability of societies mm-hmm. in part because of what I said earlier about effectively polygynous, our species being an effectively polygynous one, right? Um, uh, um, you know, men are about 10 to 15% bigger than women on average. They're more muscular, all of that. Those are the signs of a species in which male-male competition has evolved. Okay. If you just let male-male competition run wild, you have chaos. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't get effective, cooperation, not just coordination, but cooperation among individuals. And cooperation is crucial to, to, to our species, right? That's that's how we, you know, succeeded as hunter-gatherers, as I said earlier, right? Um, uh, so the snowballing process of biological and cultural evolution that I described earlier is a process in which there arise rules regulating potentially highly disruptive domains. And mm-hmm. sexuality is one of those, you know, the, the mm-hmm. prime targets for that. Okay. Um, well, how do you regulate it? You attach strong emotions. You have rules about punishment. Okay. Now we're in the domain of morality, right? Um, and in particular, um, uh, if you have um, a small society 
that is surrounded by hostile or potentially hostile rivals, then population growth is going to be one of the important determinants mm. of success. So cultural evolution will favor pronatalism, that is, the promotion of large family size in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that is basically the ancient Hebrews, okay? That mm -hmm. is the, you know, the, the religion of the ancient Hebrews, um, importantly, the, the moral prescriptions and proscriptions that are in there are about promoting population growth. In a, in a world surrounded by competitor societies, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and homosexuality isn't going to result in reproduction, okay? Mm -hmm. So one way of encouraging population growth is to say, you know, this is a prohibited behavior. Mm -hmm. And that legacy, you know, ramifies down into the present day in the societies that are heirs to, you know, the, the, the cultures of Christianity of Western Europe, which itself was built on, um, you know, the, 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 the cultures of the ancient Hebrews. Um, and so today, the societies in the world that are the most repressive and, you know, from my perspective, um, the most egregiously violating basic human rights with regard to sexual behavior um, and homosexuality in particular are those um, post-colonial societies of Africa where um, this, you know, this set of moral rules was imported as part of the, the colonial hegemony. Um, uh, so what we're seeing there is not anything intrinsic about sexual behavior and a connection to disgust, mm. although discussed operates in the sexual domain it's cultural evolution exploiting that affordance mm -hmm. in the service of pronatalism okay? i see i see so so in terms of sex and disgust then is is um okay so we we, di we discussed um discuss discuss modulating attraction but can you can you going the other direction so can you just can you turn off disgust yeah so sure. that's what sexual arousal does right okay so, I mean, so okay because if, if bodily fluids are one of the principal avenues for disease transmission and and um even more so in a world without um you know epidemic respiratory viruses which is a, a speculation on my part but I, I don't think there's any question that bodily fluids are you know a, a, an avenue for disease transmission there's no ambiguity about that um, including sexually transmitted diseases, which are as old as, you know, our species. And lots and lots of mammals have sexually transmitted diseases, um, but but not unique to sexually transmitted diseases. Um, so, you know, vomit, feces, urine, blood, those are all potential, you know, pathways for transmission. Um, you know, sexual behavior would be impossible if you didn't turn off the disgust responses, right? Because yeah. it's wet and gushy, okay? <laughs> it involves the exchange of fluids. That's what it is, right? Um, uh, and, um, you know, so the all of the sensory cues, you know, texture, odor, noise, right, which, which ordinarily would be disgust-evoking, are, um, you know are neutral or even positive 
in the context of sexual arousal. So there's an antithesis between these two things. And someone who has, just like someone who has gone without eating for a long time, um, someone who experiences sexual desire but has not had outlets for that sexual desire for a long time, um, may be indifferent to a variety of stimuli that, that in a more sexually sated individual might be aversive. I see. I guess one one uh, line that I'm getting from you is, is that, um, I mean, disgust is way more complicated than just, you know, you, you might say that um, disgust might lead to racism, say. Uh, but on the other hand, these days, people say that racism is a disgusting uh, position to hold, right? So, it, and, and then at the same time, uh, disgust modulates uh, your hunger, hunger modulates disgust, uh, arousal uh, works in both directions as well. So it, it seems that there's no, disgust really isn't like a negative or a positive emotion. It, it, it's, it's just, it's a tool that uh, our bodies use, I suppose, to regulate behavior. And that can be for very positive uh, or very negative on the other, on the other hand. It depends what you mean by negative and positive. If that by that you mean from the perspective of the moral observer, mm -hmm. then the same is true for not just for disgust, but for many, many features of the human mind, right? Um, that, you know, the same things can lead to remarkably virtuous behavior that we would laud and, you know, despicable behavior that we would deprecate, right? Um, depending on how they're deployed and the meanings that are attached to them. If by positive and negative, you mean something like the subjective experience, whether it's aversive or rewarding, disgust is actually interesting in that way too, in that mild disgust is rewarding, high disgust is aversive. Um, and that, I think, this is another conjecture, is part of an adaptive design for information gathering, because if what is sometimes called core disgust, which is you know um, the avoidance of pathogens, um, principally mm -hmm. through the oral pathway, um, uh, uh, the, the, the things that, the cues that indicate the presence of a risk of disease transmission, those are passive cues, right? So a bear might jump up from behind, you know, a tree and attack you, mm -hmm. but the bear's feces isn't going to, okay? Um, it's just a passive threat sitting there, okay? Mm -hmm. So that means that, um, the, that the kind of, prototypical core disgust elicitors um, uh, are amenable to information gathering to find out what's going on because they're passive, they're not active. And so think about, you know, like flying on a plane in the, in the before times, right? And someone gets airsick, you know, two rows back or something, um, and you hear the sounds of vomiting. Mm -hmm. If you look around, what you'll see is a whole bunch of people turning and looking at that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and this is because as long as you're not actually, you know, being splattered by the vomit, there's it's important to know what is going on. Right. Mm -hmm. um, did that person eat something? What did they, you know, what did they eat? Right. What, what, what you know, do, are there visible signs of illness other than the vomiting? Um, you know, is well, what's going on here? OK. Um, and uh, so people find mild disgust intriguing. Um mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, in fact, there's a, there was a, a show called fear factor on American television for a while. Um, that really wasn't about fear. It should have been called disgust factor because it was mostly 
was mostly about, you know, who can do the most disgusting things in a competition, right? Were you an avid watcher or? Uh, I, I would say um, I was, it was a source of interesting anecdotal evidence. <laughs> that right. Okay. Um, and, and in like American fraternities at, at universities, repeatedly reinvent this bizarre mm-hmm. thing where they have goldfish swallowing competitions where they mm-hmm. you know these these risk prone young men demonstrate their indifference to potential harm by doing disgusting things okay well why do people watch that um uh in part because you're learning something about that young man's you know um uh formidability uh, somebody who's risk prone is a good ally and a dangerous enemy um uh, but in part because this disgust component just is information gathering. Okay, I want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Okay, so disgusting things are intriguing at a low level, not at a high level. At a high level, now it's whoa, I'm getting splattered, right? You know, or mm-hmm. there's a serious risk of my getting splattered. Now I want to get away from this thing as fast as I can. Okay, um, so does that mean disgust is a positive emotion or a negative emotion in the subjective, you know, phenomenological sense? depends on the level of disgust arousal i guess the reason why i'm asking this is because you know people uh talk about uh from a political standpoint people say that uh people of certain political orientations are more disgust sensitive and this sort of thing and then there's some negative judgment they might might put across um so I'm, i'm wondering well, this is sort of getting ahead of us, but um, is, is it true that uh, conser- conservatives are more disgust sensitive? It is, yeah, and but they're they're also more sensitive to to threats in general, and there's uh, and and we have actually new work that uh, we're just submitting now um, in the context of the pandemic that's that that addresses this issue actually, um, and that that in part replicates some of these previous results with regard to disgust and so on, right, and and that's. That, and, and the logic is, um, uh, which is a very sound logic, and, and, and I should say we shouldn't take liberal as, you know, the comparison, the reference group, right? That is like, it's not that the liberals are normal and the conservatives are diseased or something, you know, we have some pathology. Um, uh, it's that there is no optimum with regard to the strategies that I'm going to describe that is constant over evolutionary time, over over cultural and ecological change okay so what are the strategies um well uh and i've this is you know a theme that i've i've touched on before which is how much do you um how much do you see opportunities in the world oh shoot that is telling me that i have uh, this has gone way past what I expected it to go past. Sorry, you're gonna have to. Edit My apologies. I, I have a one thirty appointment, and it's telling me that I have a one thirty appointment. Um, so I'm gonna have to wrap pretty soon, or we're gonna have to continue. But um, uh, and it's an important one. I can't. I can't. Okay. Blow this person well, how about we do the following thing? How about I just uh, fast forward to one more question that's very quick to answer, and maybe. Uh, who knows? Maybe in the future we can talk another time. But uh, yeah, would that we work? can. The, the the political orientation one. It's an important one, 
Um, I can try and do it fast now if you want, and then you can maybe edit this little bit in here, um, uh, or we can skip to something else. It's up to you. Right? Uh, sure. And then then I'll ask just one like very quick question. What what is the time? Is it one thirty that you need to run away I, now? I have uh, thirteen minutes. Okay. Well, let let me ask the very very quick question. Okay. Uh, with all of everything you've learned, so this is this is the silly question that I wanted to ask to end on like a, a happy point, but um, you know how do we get people to eat insects? Okay, it's an important point. Um, uh, by the way, I think all of this is happy from my perspective because it's just <laughs> fascinating how remarkable human beings are and how much the things that we experience all the time we take for granted, and if you approach them with a scientific mindset and say why do these things happen. Uh, you know, it, it, it's fascinating to understand the complexity of human beings and 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 the presence of you know um, uh, the, the the legacies of our evolutionary history. I think this is fascinating, and it's also happy because knowledge is power. If you know why people react the way that they react, if you know why you yourself react the way that you react, then you have you have greater agency to make choices about what you think is appropriate in your own life and and um, how you're going to view. Um, you know, different aspects of human behavior. So it's all happy as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, but I agree with you that uh, getting people to eat insects uh, may save the planet um, because, <laughs> um, uh, because meat consumption, which is happier than just intellectual curiosity or even individual agency, um, uh, uh, because, you know, um, meat consumption is a, a, a significant contributor to global warming, um, the production of meat, not the consumption, but the demand that creates that production and is and is growing as, you know, economies around the world um, uh, develop, um, consumer demand only increases and it's just not sustainable. So we need other sources um, uh, that can substitute for meat and plant-based proteins can do that, um, uh, but um, they require considerable engineering to have the, the, the taste and texture properties that people find rewarding in meat. Um, uh, there's some good products out there, but it, 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 it requires considerable engineering. And that in itself is um, energy intensive. Um, and, 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 and so that is part of the solution, but not the sole solution. Insects can be raised in an ecologically sustainable fashion, um, you know, very little acreage, very little energy input, um, uh, and, um, and, and can actually be um, a very little uh, nutritional input cost because they can be raised on what are otherwise waste products from from other aspects of food production and so on, right? So insects, definitely an important thing. And in many, many cultures, insects are an important food source and are a highly mm -hmm. valued one, okay? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so um, when we say people find insects disgusting, we're talking about a little sliver of the world's population. It just happens to be that that is also the sliver of the world's population that has the greatest economic and political power and which makes the, the, the per capita contribution to global warming the worst. Um, uh, so mm -hmm. those are that's an important sliver of the world's population. Um, I think that the, the, the key is to understand that part of the discussed reaction to insects in general is probably a misfiring of the ectoparasite reaction, okay? So, you know, grasshoppers or, or crickets or locusts um, or grubs are not, you know, ticks or leeches. They just have some superficial um, uh, morphological similarities to them. Um, 
And uh, so it's not that they are inherently eliciting that response, but they are an attractor in cultural evolution. That is, it's easy to get people to be disgusted by grubs, for example, because mm -hmm. of their resemblance to leeches. Um, uh, 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 and also they have other properties like they're, they, they're often wet. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, uh, wet things harbor more pathogens than dry things. Wet dog poop, much worse than do dry dog poop. <laughs> Take it from somebody who's collected many, many hundreds of pounds of dog poop over the years. N not for my personal collection, but because I not have dogs. Not for research. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so um, the, it is the cultural framing of the food source that is important here. Um, and, you know, um, presenting the, the insect food products in a way that doesn't highlight morphological features that probably accidentally trigger those other kinds of disgust, the ectoparasite or the pathogen, right? Like so, a flower or... Yeah, so, um, uh, I mean, I love um, uh, fried crickets or locusts. They're, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's like the, you know, it's got all these great taste and texture sensations. They're crunchy, they're fatty, you know, they're proteinaceous. Um, uh, you know, it's just a, a wonderful combination, but it's the legs that get people. Okay. <laughs> right. So don't like, you know, if you're trying to convince, I mean, that, you know, it's a delicacy in many parts of Southeast mm -hmm. Asia. They sell wonderful fried, you know, crickets on the street in, in Thailand. Um, but, uh, if you're trying to get, you know, Americans or, you know, uh, Germans or, or, or such to, to eat crickets or locusts, don't sell them with the legs on, you know, grind up, mm -hmm. you know, the whole creature, Put it in a in a food bar or you know if mm -hmm. you must have the whole creature you know get rid of the legs and the head right um uh because uh, those are parts that are culturally labeled as disgust eliciting because of accidental overlap i think right um uh so um i i mean meat uh you know um animal meat not insect protein but meat itself has potential disgust elicitors Right. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because we've learned how I, to package it. Yeah. As I said, it's, you know, um, it, it's a mixed bag, right? It's been key to our species um, success, but it also carries the risk of pathogen transmission. And many consumers in economically developed countries, especially in the United States. So in, in Europe, you know, butchers are still commonplace in many cities. But in the United States, um, many Americans their meat consumption is entirely divorced from the process of, of killing an animal and, and, and cutting it up into pieces, right? And that many Americans would actually be powerfully disgusted were they witness to that. I actually think that ethically, it, you ought not to eat meat unless you've at least witnessed, if not mm -hmm. been part of the, the, the killing and butchering of an animal, because you ought to know what you're doing. And if you, mm -hmm. if you know that and you're okay with that, you know, plenty of Americans hunt and so on, that's fine, right? Um, but but don't fool yourself into thinking that um, that somehow this is free of those potential disgust elicitors and, and, and the ethical concomitants of them. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, you package hamburger in a little plastic tube, um, you know, ground beef in a little plastic tube. It doesn't look anything like a cow. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's even been, you know, most of the blood has been removed. So, you know, it's just it doesn't have these these properties associated with the animal really, right? And mm -hmm. and um, you do the same with the locust or the, the, the mealyworm or the grub or, you know, what you're trying to, to, mm -hmm. to, to produce. Um, uh, and I think you can, um, if you can get people 
to the eating stage, past the disgust stage, and you can remind them and convince them that disgust, disgust seems like it's inherent. It's mm -hmm. not, right? Yeah. We, as part of cultural organisms, we learn what to attach disgust to, okay? So one of the reasons that my, um, you know, then nine-year-old daughter could live in Indonesia for years and grow successfully despite not being able to tolerate super hot, spicy food is we could get Skippy peanut butter, okay? <laughs> And she, you know, was a well-nourished child thanks to, and this is not product placement, but, you know, that was the only kind of peanut butter we could get. She could get, our friends would refuse to eat the stuff. They said, that looks like baby shit. And they're right. It does look like baby shit, especially when it's melted. It looks just like baby shit. Okay. You just have to learn that, you know, to get past those potential disgust elicitors. It's I mean, just so a, powerful. <laughs> Well, there's a famous disgust experiment in which um, subjects are given little vials of valeric acid, which is this very strong smelling chemical. If you tell the subjects, this is the odor of a fine or the aroma of a fine French cheese. Mm, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I'd really like to try that. And if you tell them this is um, we've extracted this from sweaty gym socks, mm. they're, they're just repelled by it. It's exactly the same, you know, molecule. Nothing yeah. is different. It's just the framing around it and how we, what meaning we attach. And so that, you know, we are a culture dependent species. Our evolved psychology includes many, many mechanisms for attaching cultural meaning to things. And that means that cultural meanings can change, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they have changed just with regard to meat consumption because a hundred years ago, Americans did not get, you know, de-animalized meat. They, that is, mm -hmm. you know, you were at least present at the butchering, if not, you know, the killing of the animal. And, and you understood the connection between the food that you were eating and the animal that it came from. By virtue of the disgust responses, we have changed the cultural framing of that food. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, we can do all kinds of things with disgust responses as a society, depending on how we package both literally and conceptually the product at issue and you know it's only the fate of the planet here people so um come on right you can you can you can think differently about other food sources i think dan i i have you wouldn't believe how many more questions i have but i think i have to let you go so <laughs> it's been um, it's been really interesting uh thank you so much for coming on uh it was a pleasure well it was it was wonderful talking to you and um uh thank you for your interest in the subject and for sharing science with the public because ultimately you know um uh, scientific knowledge should be public knowledge it should be it should belong to all humanity it shouldn't be squirreled away in universities and 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 subscription journals and you know um private libraries this should be you know knowledge is is the is the birthright of every person and so uh thank you for sharing my pleasure. You're a great speaker as well, Dan. It was <laughs> well, it's they pay me to do it. It's what I do for a living. That's basically what being a professor is just about asking questions and talking to people, really. That's Escaped Sapiens.